All right, welcome everyone to another episode of the Illusion of Consensus podcast with myself, Ravarora, and Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. Today, we're super excited to bring on Alex Berenson, an independent journalist on Substack, writing at Unreported Truths, formerly a New York Times reporter, as well as a spy novelist, uh, someone who's covered cannabis, uh, Tell Your Children is a fantastic book. Um, I don't think Alex needs too much of an, uh, an, an elaborate introduction, um, and we're going to talk about all of the controversial and interesting things he's been doing over the past couple of years, including just the, the unexpected trajectory of his career, moving from one area to the other, which I'm sure no one could predict, <laughs> but we'll, we'll get all into that. Uh, Alex, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Rob. Thanks. Good to see you again, Dr. J. It's so, it's, it's so great to talk to you, Alex. Um, so, Alex, I figured we should start uh, by l- telling, introducing you to the audience a little bit. I mean, there, there may be folks who don't know you. It, it, that would be surprising. But I don't know if they know your your full story. Um, you were a New York Times journalist at, at one point. You were uh, close. Yeah, I was, I was a reporter for the Times. I joined in 99. I was uh, pretty lucky. I was not even 27. Uh, I had been at the street.com, which was uh, – you know, an online uh, financial publication. I had been a financial reporter. I, uh, when I graduated from Yale, I went to the Denver Post. I worked in the business section there. Uh, and then I went to the street.com. I, you know, I thought it would be interesting to join the, you know, this new internet publication. The internet was pretty, you know, pretty young at the time. Uh, and I, uh, I had some interesting stories even at the street.com. I wrote about a publicly traded company that was, um, uh, basically a giant fraud um, run by a guy who's now dead, who was a, um, uh, had a few problems with um, substance abuse uh, and who later bought a company in California. These are all little telecom companies. Um, and that company was famous for what was called slamming and cramming, um, which was when you would change somebody's um, uh, long distance service, you know, children, you don't know this, but back in the day you had a landline phone and you had to have a long distance service plan if you were going to call outside the immediate area. And, um, and so this, this company in California, um, would, would find like, you know, people in Orange County who didn't speak very good English and change their plans and charge them obscene amounts of money and they wouldn't be able to get it back. So that was called slamming and cramming. And that company was run by a former drug dealer also who was well known to the police because he drove a red Porsche with the vanity license plate crack. I kid you not. (laughs) And so, I mean, this was just a great story. And then this publicly traded company bought this company um, as part of its sort of financial fraud. I wrote all this and um, and this was in 2000 or sorry, 1998. And, and, and uh, Telsave, the company, the publicly traded company, then decided that I must be on the take because, you know, everybody who commits fraud thinks everybody else is committing fraud. And they hired Kroll Associates, which was a, a was a fan, was and is a fancy investigative firm to have me followed. So Kroll then outsourced this job uh, to a New York City detective because believe it or not, and I believe this is still true today. I, know, I don't know, but I believe it's still true today. New York City police officers and maybe police officers elsewhere can take outside jobs, including private detective work, which I think is insane and should not be allowed. Anyway, this guy, this guy literally chased me down the uh, Long Island Expressway. This was all documented. There, there was a, uh, a, a magazine piece about it um, 
uh, that ran like 25 years ago. Uh, he chased me down the Long Island Expressway at 100 miles an hour as I was on my way to JFK. And um, and I really thought my life was in danger, although it, it wasn't. This is sort of Keystone Cops stuff. Um, <laughs> and this story got was good enough and exciting enough, probably, that it's the reason I got hired at the uh, New York Times. Um, so I always joke mm. that Dan Borislaw, who is the now dead uh, head of Telsave, and I both got what we wanted. He got $100 million. Uh, and I got hired by the New York Times. So in 1999, I joined the Times, and I worked there for 10 years. Uh, I had a, I had, a, to my mind, an exciting career. I did uh, go to um, uh, Iraq for the paper a couple of times. Um, I, uh, I was you in reported New Orleans on the Green after. Was that? Saw something where you wrote on the Green Zone, like you were, you were talking about what, it, and then you were like, what it's like to walk around a city just. Uh, like a 20 something walking around Iran, uh, you know, war torn Iraq or something. Uh, that, that was, yeah, uh, yeah, no, it was, I mean, it was a very, it was a very exciting and enlightening and intro, you know, experience. Um, and I thought I did some, you know, uh, I, I think the piece you're talking about was sort of like inside the green zone, they had no idea what was going on. Just like That's I think inside it. the white house, they had very little idea what was happening with COVID, and, you know, because ultimately the people at the top, unless they have, unless the reporting procedures are really good, um, information gets so sort of flattened and, and, and uh, manipulated at each level that by the time you get to the top, uh, it gets to the top, it's, you know, it's mainly going to tell people what they want to hear unless they go out of their way to find something else. And that's why some reason, in some ways, why an independent press is so important it, because we can sort of stovepipe information to the people at the top that may at least lead them to raise questions about what they're hearing and getting internally. Mm -hmm. And so when the press becomes part of the government, um, you know, effectively part of the government, even if it's nominally independent, that independent check is destroyed and becomes, a, and it's a real problem for policymakers. Um, you know, it's you see this in dictatorships where people, you know, the people at the top of the dictatorship really have no idea what's going on because because the, the press is afraid to tell them. So. So yeah, so I was in Iraq for the paper. Um, I was in I was in New Orleans after Katrina, which was an interesting experience. But mainly, I was a, first a financial uh, investigative reporter, and then really a drug industry investigative reporter and drug and medicine, but mostly drugs. And um, and I think that really has informed my experience um, in the last couple of years about COVID and, and especially about the vaccine. You, you did also, you wrote about, you wrote about uh, uh, drugs that were pulled from the market when you were at the New York Times. I mean, you, you, you actually had the, a science beat. In yeah. I, I, I mean, it was a business investigative beat, but it, uh, it overlaps certainly with uh, not so much basic science, but, but um, you know, I would say drug development. Um, and I got to be, I got to really learn about drug development and, 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 you know, and the way the companies, the big, the biggest pharma companies in the world behave, which, um, which is very problematic and very troubling. And, um, and what I learned, I think, you know, which is something that I think even, even doctors don't necessarily understand is that, uh, or a lot of doctors don't necessarily understand is that, um, uh, one of the most crucial elements in drug development, if not the most crucial element, is the structuring of clinical trials. And um, and the companies know what they want to get out of a clinical trial before they before they begin it. They can't always get it. I mean, they, you know, there's, yeah. there's biology uh, involved, usually, and you don't always know. But, but they know what they're looking the for. 
the FDA has to play some tempering role in that. Like they they have to convince the FDA that the trial is a worthwhile trial to do. And the, and you know, like in my uh, experience, the FDA uh, traditionally has played a, a a constraint on the on on like shenanigans with, with trials. They'll, they'll yes, look, um, I would I would I would agree that they that they have. Um, I would say the bigger and sort of more established the company, the better the relationship it's likely to have with the FDA. And so, you know, I think if you if you run a little company, um, uh, they're likely to push back and ask more questions. I would also say, um, you know, exigencies of the of the uh, the condition matter a lot, right? So if so if you and you, we've seen this a lot just in the last couple of years, if you have an uh, you know incurable disease. Um, a disease where there's a very, you know, loud sort of patient pressure group, the FDA can be convinced, you know, to drop its standards, both in terms of what they'll allow people to test and what they might allow for an approvable drug. And of course, you know, COVID is the ultimate example of that. COVID, COVID, I mean, all three conditions you have the, we're sort of jumping ahead here, but you have the FDA regulator was involved in warp speed. Warp speed was his idea, really, Dr. Peter Marks. Um, You have, so so the, so the regulator is actually pushing the design. You have an incredibly loud and politicized um, you know, process where people really, really want an approved, uh, you know, in this case, vaccine, but any kind of treatment. And, and you have something that, uh, that is, um, you know, although, I mean, COVID is the furthest thing from you know, an incurable disease like ALS for most people. Um, there were a lot of people dying. So there was a lot of uh of pressure that way too so so in and you had pfizer you know which is a very large company and very politically connected leading the development of 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 the most important vaccine so so you had all this pressure on on the fda even before the first patient was enrolled yeah and and at that at that time the pressure was coming from the trump administration to develop the vaccine as quickly as possible and then you had people like dr eric topol and Dr. Peter Hotez, who are sounding the alarm, saying this vaccine is being rushed far too quickly. We're not sure about the safety and efficacy profiles. We should wait. Right. That was kind of the narrative. And obviously, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, we're not taking the Trump vaccine, all that lunacy. And then the narrative very quickly shifted. I mean, I, I wonder. Mean, it, shifted, it shifted overnight, basically. Yeah. When, when, I, wonder, when, I wonder for you, Alex, too. Like, I mean, I've thought about this before, but for you, like, if, if it was under Trump, if Trump's won the election, like, maybe. You know, you would have had a spot at the maybe you 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 would have been the pandemic's most vindicated man at the Atlantic, not the not the pandemic's strongest man potentially, depending had, on the political climate. Actually, can yeah, I, can I, I mean, what? it's a, it's a very good question. If Trump had won, I I don't look. I think the va- the top line numbers from the vaccine from the two big trials were so compelling um, that, that that there would have been a lot of pressure to move forward. But there certainly would have been at yeah. least a few more questions asked. But but so yeah. so just to go all the way back. So I work for the Times. Wait, um, let me let me let me ask about the Times because that I think it's really interesting. Um, I mean, the Times in the in the two thousands, early two thousands, the Iraq War happens. It, it's it, it in some ways it pushes for the Iraq War. It enables the Iraq War uh, with with Judith Miller's coverage. But at the same time, you're you and and a lot of those science writers and and other folks there are are, are I mean almost anti-establishment. Like you're you're holding you're holding the the drug companies responsible. For for nonsense, you're 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 just exposing fraud. So it's it's almost like the the New York Times is schizophrenic in some ways, right? It's it's pro-establishment on, on the on the war side, but anti-establishment on the on on this side. During during the pandemic, 
The, the role that New York Times has played has been absolutely shocking, right? It's it's full on. It's like, as if it's like a Praetorian guard for Tony Fauci. Yes, that's that's absolutely true. So so look, the Times is a little bit multiple personality, um, just like the Washington Post. It, you know, these are these are expect, but the Times more than anything else, right? The, the Times is the, is the way the establishment talks to itself, right? It is, uh, you know, it, it is. It historically center left, um, you know, fact driven, I would say, like uh, plays sort of a, a, a maybe a, maybe go so far as to say a unique role in, you know, in sort of American journalism and even more because it has this worldwide reach. Um, you know, at the Times had correspondence everywhere um, in a way that, you know, the Washington Post had uh, had a similar reach, but not as much. Uh, and the AP, of course, had that reach, but but wasn't taken as seriously, whether or not it should have been. So so the times so the times was the way the government talked to itself, the way the government talked to other governments. And then at the same time, it had this, uh, you know, this, this stable of investigative reporters who, um, you know, people people would say the job of journalism is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable, which I think is a good is a good line and a good way to look at things as, you know, if you're a certain kind of journalist. And and let me let me let me explain something else, which I don't think people understand and sort of plays into this duality a little bit. Um, almost ev- like almost every newspaper will have what I would call outside reporters and inside reporters. OK, and outside reporters are people like me who want to investigate and they want um, they you know, they want to find stuff that, they, you know, that people don't necessarily know. Uh, you know, I'm, I, I like to look through documents, whether it's an SEC filing, whether it's, uh, you know, some manual that nobody ever discovered about some, you know, uh, uh, the taser, for example. I wrote a series of investigative pieces about about tasers in 2004. And it was, you know, it was a mix of uh, of sourcing. OK. Um, and then there's inside reporters and inside reporters are important too. inside reporters are people who are good at, you know, sitting down with somebody important and getting them to open up. And hopefully you get that person to open up a little bit more than they intended to. And then maybe you take some of the information you found and you go to somebody else who's powerful and important and you kind of play them off each other. Um, and, and, and ultimately, like when, you, when you're one of those people, you have to figure out with any particular story how much it's worth burning your relationship with your sources. Because, because those are the people on the inside and you don't want to have to, you don't want to burn them so badly that they'll never talk to you again. So, so, so that it's more personality driven, and I'm sort of more fact driven on the. And so, but a really big good newspaper needs people who are skilled at both those things. Okay, um, I never liked that kind of reporting because I didn't like having my sources um, have more power than I did, and and you know, and, and know that like that they could cut me off. But but if you're gonna cover, for example, like the CIA, you're stuck in that kind of relationship. You just are because those people are the people with the classified documents. You don't have that. Um, and they don't have to publish anything to the SEC. They don't have any, you don't really have any way to check what they're telling you, except what other people inside are telling you. So, so I think that's a dynamic that's not that well understood. Um, so, so I remember once talking to actually this is a guy who is a very senior person in publishing, and this was a, this was a long time ago. And I said, I said, yeah, you know, sometimes I like being able to tell, you know, to have a conversation with a source and you know say something that might surprise them. And he said to me, 
I don't think a reporter's ever said anything to me about publishing that surprised me, right? Because because he he knew the business better than they did. So so and I don't think he was bragging. It was just sort of a statement of fact. So anyway, I was an outside reporter. Always that's what I've always been. Okay, um, uh, you know, and and I think one of the things about being an outside reporter is that you have to recognize you are not perfect either. You have biases and problems. And you're, you know, one of the things you can't, you always have to be careful about as, as, as one of these people is that you don't turn, you don't turn yourself into the hero of the story. Okay. Cause, cause you are just as flawed as all the people you're writing about. And, and I've seen that happen with other. Dude, that's, that's not why I got into journalism, man. I thought, I thought we were going to be gods or something. We're going to be worshipped. No, people do. They, I mean, not gods, but crusaders. Like, like (laughs) I'm, uh, you know, and. And, and that is a really dangerous um, path to take. I mean, and by the way, you know, one of the good things about Twitter is that people are constantly telling you how awful you are. And so, um, you know, it, it, it does, I think it, it does provide a corrective to, to anybody <laughs> well, who's I paying attention. You, maybe you have a particularly combative Twitter account. <laughs> Uh, yes. But so 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 that's the kind of reporter I was at the times. And, you know, I think you can go back and look at the stories that I wrote and they've held up pretty well. I mean, even it's funny. I, I noticed that uh, even uh, a, a year or two ago, um, the New Yorker sort of drew extensively on a piece that I had written without, you know, without mentioning or they get they maybe they, they mentioned the New York. They didn't mention me, of course, but they, they may have mentioned the New York Times wrote X or Y. And I thought wow, like I wrote that 15 years ago and it's still being sort of drawn on for an investigative piece today. Um, uh, so, so, so I left, so, okay, so why did I leave the Times? Um, and sometimes people on Twitter like to say I was fired from the Times, which just couldn't be more inaccurate. I, in 2006, I wrote a novel called The Faithful Spy. And The Faithful Spy um, kind of drew upon uh, my experience in Iraq, but really, um, I had been thinking about it even before I went over there for the first time in 2003. Uh, it's about a, a CIA operative who um, is inside Al Qaeda when 9/11 happens. He's an American, um, uh, you know, based, you know, sort of a le- very, very loosely on the story of John Walker Lynn, the American Taliban, um, and he. So he's been sent to infiltrate. Uh, Al Qaeda, and he fails to, you know, he fails to stop the attacks. And so he decides he's going to stay over there until they truly trust him. And, you know, he can get close to bin Laden, or they send him back to the United States to do some other attack. And that's ultimately what they do. They send him back to the United States. um, But they don't really trust him fully, even though they're, they're willing to use him. And the CIA doesn't trust him fully at this point, because he's been gone for so long. His name's John Wells, and so he um, he ultimately uh, is in the position a little bit of the sheriff in High Noon, where the town doesn't trust him, and the outlaws certainly don't trust him, and he has to he has to ultimately stop an attack on Times Square um, by himself, uh, basically. Well, there's one woman inside the CIA who believes in him, um, and 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 so there's a love story underneath this, which is probably why it works so well. And it did work well. Um, uh, it got you know it got pretty good reviews. And then one day in 2008, when it was issued in paperback, I woke up and discovered it was a number one 
uh, Times bestseller. Um, so for the rest of my life, I will be a number one Times bestseller based on that one week. Um, and ultimately, that book has sold uh, you know several hundred thousand copies uh, and 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 became uh, the start of a twelve book series. Um, and it turns out that if you write a book that is a number one New York Times bestseller and you can write a book a year, which is what the publishers want with commercial fiction, they'll pay quite well for it. And um, and so it became clear to me in, you know, in 2008, 2009, that I couldn't do both these things. Um, uh, and so I decided I was going to write novels full time um, and did. Uh, um, and I mean, the unfortunate thing that happened with the faithful spy was, um, I, I, uh, in 2009, I was approached by a guy named Howard Gordon, who was the head writer on 24, the showrunner it's called. Um, and you know, he said, come out to LA. I want to, uh, I want you to consult in our writer's room. Um, and, and I thought this will be fantastic. And I did. Uh, I worked there for four weeks and I got to see sort of the Hollywood writing process from the inside, which was really fascinating. Um, and then uh, Howard uh, later that year, I think, said to me, hey, we, you know, we got a show called Homeland. Um, uh, you want to read the first draft of our script? As he said, it's based on this Israeli show um, called Sorry, Home, Homeland, the Netflix show, right? Uh, the sh- uh, the sh- uh, show. Net- it's on, there's a whole there's a show on Netflix called Homeland about foreign affairs. No, no, the, is that, this is, that is this is Homeland. Uh, uh, was uh, no, this was 2009. Uh, this was uh, this 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 came out on Showtime. Unless I'm okay. unless I'm okay. Completely, you know what? I'm. <laughs> this is weird that I need even to look this up. But <laughs> no, Homeland is no Homeland is Showtime. Okay, there's a homeland on Netflix as well, but maybe that's from Showtime, and it's also maybe like- you're watching. You're probably, you know what? It's probably been. Uh, Rob, how old are you? Serious question. <laughs> Twenty two. So, no, are you really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you don't remember when it came out? It came out in 2011 or 2012 on Showtime, and it was a big, it was a big hit. Uh, okay. Brody and anyway, if you watch Homeland, you'll see there's a character named Saul Berenson. Okay, and you'll and and that is not a coincidence. And you'll also see that the the arc. If you read the Faithful Spy, you'll see the architecture of Homeland. Um, the central architecture oh. of the three main characters is exactly the same as the central architecture. Yeah, of I've, I've seen this. Spy. I've seen this, Alex. I've seen it on Netflix. Like okay. in the last couple of years, I've seen the show. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. Showtime. So Showtime sold the rights to Netflix or something like that. But, okay, but the show yeah, originally. I, I, I haven't seen Homeland, but I, I read. I read the first book of your because I, I didn't know about you before the pandemic, Alex. And I've, then I found out about you, and I'm like, okay, I should I should learn a little about you. So I read. I mean, it's a fantastic novel. Like that first Thank one you. is incredible. So um, so if you see season one of Homeland, you'll you'll see um, you'll see what these guys did. Okay. And they did one thing that was genius, which was, um, which was in the Faithful Spy, uh, uh, Exley, the, the the woman at the CIA, believes in John Wells when no one else does. Okay, and, and and they sort of fall in love. She believes in him. They don't, you know, they have a, they they barely speak or see each other in the book because it's just because he's kind of roaming the country and and she's at the agency, but she's this very tightly wound uh woman who um who 
basically has given her whole life to the agency and she falls in love with Wells. In in the faith in Homeland, uh uh Carrie, um, the Claire Danes character, is this very, very tightly wound woman who's working at the CIA, um, who uh, you know, she's more troubled actually than Exley. She's uh she, you know, she's bipolar essentially, but uh but she falls in love with with Brody, with the Damian Lewis character, even though she knows he's a spy, so they and an operative for for a for an Islamic terrorist group. So they so they flip it inside out in a way that's genius. So in my case, she falls in love with Wells because because she believes in him, and in the other, you know, in the in Homeland, she falls in love with Brody, even though she knows that there's something wrong. And that actually, that's like, that's the, that, 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 that change elevated the, uh, the homeland. I, I would agree with that. Nonetheless, these guys stole the architecture and more than the architecture, they stole specific details, many specific details about, uh, about what I had written. And they credited me not by buying the rights to the faithful spy, but by naming, uh, the Mandy Patinkin character, Saul Berenson. And if I had been, even though like, I'm not a naive person. Like I was somewhat seduced by Hollywood and I basically, and they told me that they had gotten all this from this, this Israeli television show, which was also called Homeland. And in reality, once I actually saw that show, I realized it wasn't true. Nonetheless, it was too late for me to do anything about it. The reason I mention all of this is had this not happened or had it happened in a somewhat different way, had they actually bought the rights and had I become a writer on the show with them, my career might've gone in a different direction. Um, and I wouldn't have, uh, I wouldn't have uh, maybe been in the position I was in 2018 where I would have started, uh, you know, getting back into nonfiction journalism. It's all it's all water under the bridge. I'm I'm very uh, happy with the Wells series, which was 12 books. I still get emails from people asking me, is there going to be a 13th book? You know, because the last one came out in 2018. Um, and uh, and so and maybe there will. But I just don't. I haven't even had time to think about it. But it's okay. So, so my career. I I'm at the Times. I leave the Times at the beginning of 2010 because I'm writing all these spy novels. I write a spy novel a year through 2018. Um, you know, I have a few kind of like incursions into Hollywood, but I don't. It doesn't really um, go anywhere for me. Can I, Alex, um, Alex, can I ask one follow up on Homeland? Just to close the yes, loop on yeah. that. Um, so what's your overall take on just how the series progressed over what, nine, 10, oh, 11? Well, so season one, they stole from me. Uh, season three, they stole from John LeCarré. Those were the two really good seasons. Um, the rest of the show is okay. very mediocre. Um, oh, you, you've seen the rest of the seasons? I, I've seen I've seen one, two, three, and four. I'm not sure I watched okay. the later seasons. I okay. can't remember. Um, uh, you know, anyway it's it's look at some point people stop being interested in in islamic terrorism uh yeah. you know at some point 9 11 is more than 20 years ago i mean rob you were barely alive right <laughs> i'm not no joke right you must have yeah. been born that year right yeah Fe february 2001 wow okay so so like for for people your age and younger like it's just history and there's been a lot that's happened ever since and so so, uh, you know, like that will not be if I ever get back to writing fiction, 
maybe I'll write one more Wells novel because I feel like I yeah. have to owe people. But, uh, the, but that's not the Homeland story. The Homeland story, I will say, is, is very interesting. I never heard you talk about it. I, I don't know if you mentioned this elsewhere. Yeah, a few years ago. Here's if the pattern follows right, which what has to happen is you need to start a new series about dissident scientists, some novelization. <laughs> I, I, you know, it's funny. I have somebody who really wants me to write a novel about kind of about surveillance technology, like a real dystopian novel looking forward. And I just, I can't even think about that right now. Um, uh, um, so, so, okay. So I write these books. I basically, you know, am not a journalist anymore. I wrote a couple where were called Kindle singles um, in the, you know, in the, in the aughts. Um, and then around 2017 or so, my wife, who's a forensic psychiatrist, gets me very interested in cannabis and the mental health effects of cannabis. And this was not a subject that I was particularly aware of or interested in. Okay. I, as I say, until at the beginning of tell your children, I, you know, I smoked pot a few times in my life. Wasn't my thing. Um, you know, I'd say I'm a moderate drinker. I'm, I'm a gambler, uh, you know, a poker player, uh, more, I mean, poker is a little bit, you know, it's a game of skill as much as luck, but it's still gambling. Um, uh, so I don't have any, you know, like religious objections to cannabis or, uh, you know, I, I was, I always sort of considered myself a libertarian about drug use. Um, I didn't think about it that much. Um, uh, and then, you know, you, I think as you get older, you see the, uh, I mean, you, you see that drug use can have really severe consequences. My brother, my brother-in-law, my wife's younger brother, um, died of a drug overdose in Hong Kong in 2011. And that was obviously devastating for her. Um, and I think, you know, I think the U.S. has, you know, it, beginning with, you know, our friends at Purdue Pharma and OxyContin, uh, you know, we've, we've had this terrible unending worsening wave of of drug abuse deaths drug you know of, of of opioid deaths that um has reached levels that uh you know are unthinkable really you know more than a hundred thousand americans a year dying uh from opioids now and um and it really the the modern wave of this started with prescription opioids and you know and, and this is i mean this is something that the medical establishment really has not um, has not dealt with in a meaningful way. For all that's been written and all that's been done, there has not been any, uh, you know, come to Jesus moment about this. So, um, so yeah, so I became, and, and I, and, you know, and, and cannabis, obviously cannabis does not cause the same kind of overdose problems as opiates. Nobody would say that it does. Um, um, you know, cannabis is not as dangerous as alcohol in, in, you know, in sort of like short-term excess, right? You can't really, I mean, there's a few cases, but you can't really die from a cannabis overdose, a THC overdose. It's very unlikely, as opposed to, you know, people do die from ethanol overdoses all the time. But but nonetheless, cannabis is a dangerous drug. I mean, there's just it's and mainly psychiatrically. And so um, and so uh, so I the more I looked, the more I was stunned how strong the evidence for, um, you know, that, that cannabis can cause psychotic episodes and that it can cause, uh, you know, in vulnerable people, certainly if they start using as a, at a young age, it increases the risk of schizophrenia, um, and, and, and bipolar mania too, probably. And so, and these are problems that have downstream consequences. Not, I mean, they're terrible for the person, but they're also terrible for the family. 
And they can also, you know, uh, psychosis is definitely causally related to violence. So this is this is the part people hate when I say it, but it doesn't make it less true. Um, so I decided I was going to write a book about this. And, um, and uh, you know, that's Tell Your Children, which came out at the beginning of 2019. Okay. And I knew, I knew that the drug legalization lobby and that the, you know, the cannabis industry, which is a real industry, don't, don't kid yourself, would not like this book. Okay. I, I, you know, and certainly there's lots of arguments about whether cannabis should be legalized and whether or not, uh, you know, it's racially disparate to keep it illegal. Um, uh, you know, whether even if you decriminalize it as opposed to making it fully legal, well, okay, you know, black people still get in more trouble. And sometimes if they're on parole, uh, you know, they get sent back to prison and, you know, that's unfair as well. Um, can, I, can I stop you but ask you about the book? Because it's, it's yes. really interesting because to me, it looks like a departure from what you've done before. So like the New York Times, you're, you're in, in, in some sense, you're, you know, as you said, an outside investigative reporter, you you go to Iraq, you write a novel, um, you're not, I, I, it's clear you've read some scientific papers in your New York Times, but that wasn't like the central focus of your work, your financial reporter. The, the, the cannabis book, the center of it is scientific papers, like yes. you're reading scientific papers, you're like uh, t putting them in context, you're, you're trying to like understand the limitations of them, you're understanding the, the I mean, it's a, it's a science book. Yep. It's, it could so, be a PhD thesis. And, yeah, there, and there's well, even some original yeah, research in there. Just so we're clear, it's um, much more entertaining than any PhD thesis I've read. But like that, just like, that's another that's another thing. Um, <laughs> so what? Where? How did that happen? How did you get to that point? So, so I would say it, it it's not so much a departure as um as an expansion on because it, it's document based. Um, I did talk to some of the you know leading researchers in the world on this issue. Uh, and I did find some sort of personal, you know, some personal stories. I did interview, you know, a handful of people who whose lives had been impacted by, you know, familial cannabis use or, uh, you know, or I, I, you know, even their own. But but um, so, I, I mean, I regard it as a work of journalism. Um, uh, you know, there there we with a now, unfortunately, a former friend of mine um, who I've lost to. COVID and the vaccines, uh, I did some, um, you know, statistical analysis of patterns of drug use, um, um, which it was actually original research. Uh, but it, it, it's, I would say it's halfway between journalism and, and, a, and a true scientific work, right? It is, um, you know, in that, like I was operating, I wasn't in a PhD program, I was sort of operating on my own. I did, you know, try to talk to individuals. Um, the original version of the book didn't have a bibliography, which was a mistake because people said, oh, it doesn't even have a bibliography. How do we know, you know, all this stuff is true? So I put a bibliography in, a, you know, a 17-page long bibliography for the, um, uh, for the paperback edition. Um, but but I, I would say it was kind of returned to journalism in a, um, in a concentrated way. Um, and so, uh, and, and, and I was very proud of the book. I mean, I'm still very proud of the book. Um, and I, in some ways I think it might outlast pandemia and be, uh, you know, what, what I'm known for best. I'm not sure, but, um, Seems unlikely Alex actually, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> so, 
So, so the book came out at the beginning of 2019. And I knew, like I said, I knew it was going to be controversial. I knew people weren't going to like it because, because, you know, cannabis legalization is very tied into racial politics in the United States. And anything tied into racial politics in the United States is a third rail. Okay. Any, you know, and there's this notion, which is just completely false, that there's all these, you know, black people in jail for minor cannabis offenses. It's just not true. You know, look, you can find some terrible cases in the South where somebody was arrested for, you know, minor possession and it was their third offense and they, you know, they wound up doing five years. And I mean, that shouldn't happen. I think we can all agree that shouldn't happen. But but those cases are are, are vanishingly rare, even in the South, and they basically haven't existed for decades outside the South. Again, like somebody's going to find a case and say, look, yes, there might be one here or there, but but they're just very, very rare. I mean, I mean, vanishing. So, so nonetheless, I knew the book was going to be controversial, but I thought, hey, look, um, you know, like I was a reporter for the Times. Nobody ever sort of said I, I didn't resign in disgrace. Like nobody ever found any big problems with my stories because there weren't any like like my stuff's held up pretty well. This book will be taken seriously. It may be disliked, but it will be taken seriously. And, you know. Like when when a former New York Times reporter writes a work of serious nonfiction, especially on a controversial topic, it gets attention. And that didn't happen. It happened at the very, very beginning of the process when Malcolm Gladwell wrote a story in The New Yorker that was basically based on the book um, and credited it. He did. Um, and and I wrote an op ed for The Times um, uh, that was based on the book. And then the cannabis lobby including a lot of journalists on the left, basically uh, engaged in a coordinated campaign to try to smear me and the book. And and that wasn't, even that wasn't the surprise. The surprise was that the Washington Post and the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal everybody, did not stand up and say, we're going to review this on the merits. Like this is an important work of journalism and this needs to be part of the discussion. Basically, I was just shunned, okay? And this is very important too, right? This is important because it told me or it informed me in 2020 as, as that process was starting to happen in an even more overt way that, that I was just going to have to stand up for myself, that I could not expect fair treatment from the, from the media, that, 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 that people were going to be very, very aligned openly on a, on a narrative that COVID was extraordinarily dangerous. This is pre-vaccine. It got even worse in 2021, but, and that we had to shut down and that, um, that, you know, this was going to be a, a societally destroying event if we didn't do all the right things, if we didn't mask up and lock down and close okay, schools so, so, and test so let's, trace. So let's, so, let's go so, to, let's go to 2020, Alex, because it's, it's, okay, it's, so, it's I, let I, me just, I, let me just, I, let me just finish the cellular token thing. One more. So, so the book comes out in 2019 and it does reasonably well, but it is it is shunned and I am shunned. Um, and so, and and then by the way, I had written one more novel that was a non John Wells novel um, that was actually supposed to come out in 2020. Um, so in and that book was fin I finished that book I believe in the summer of 2019. Um, and I was working in the fall of 2019 on a book, which I, this book, I would like to really come back to a nonfiction book about sort of drug policies in the United States on the theory that like no one has made 
the coherent anti-legalization case. Um, uh, and, and, you know, and the people on the other side have been very sort of patiently arguing in favor of legalization, not just of cannabis, but, you know, of psychedelics and even of, you know, really hard drugs, cocaine and heroin and methamphetamine. There's a significant, you know, there's a significant move at least to decriminalize um, uh, those drugs. I, I think that's a, that's a very bad idea, not on a, and I think there's a, you know, not a moral case. I think there's a very practical case to be made about that. And that's sort of what I was working on in the fall of 2020, in January of 2020, or fall of 2019. And then January of 2020, we all hear about this virus. Yeah. Before we go on to COVID, I just want to bookmark here for you, Alex, that I think it'd be very interesting for you to talk about and cover other drugs too, especially like psychedelics. That's the new big craze in the mental health world, the spiritual world, Johns Hopkins, UCSF, all these different institutions that are working on this. And I think there was some tweet thread a while ago where I think maybe I tagged you or something. Yep. But I'm, I'm going to have to... And I have to say, I was impre- I've was i done very, very little work on psychedelics. I don't have any idea whether yeah. the, you know this idea that you can use them as therapy makes sense. And um, I really don't. And I was impressed when I raised those issues about the clinical trials that the, you know, that lead, I don't know if he's the lead researcher, but he's certainly an important researcher in this said, hey, you know, you have some interesting points here and here's what I think about them. And so like that kind of conversation doesn't really happen with cannabis, right? There's this, yeah. there's this total lie about cannabis that you can't study it because it's a schedule one drug. I mean, it's just total nonsense. It's been studied incredibly extensively for the last 25 years. Um, it just doesn't it's just not medicinal. Like as, as the, you know, the best line about cannabis is the condition it cures is not being high. And so, I mean, yeah. and, and, and by the way, this happened with alcohol. Okay. This happened with alcohol yeah. during prohibition there, you know, you could get a medical, if you were rich, you could get a, you know, a, a medical license essentially from a doctor to consume ethanol. So, uh, you know, There's like a, you know, Winston yeah. Churchill got one when he visited the United States. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> So, 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 you know, history does not repeat itself, but it rhymes. So, uh, so yeah, psychedelics, like I, I would love to explore that issue. As you can hear, there's like a bunch of stuff I'd like to do that I don't have to. Yeah, yeah. And the person you mentioned, by the way, that's Dr. Matt Johnson at Johns Hopkins. And he's been leading the big trials on using like psilocybin, magic mushrooms for depression, end of life, anxiety, spiritual experience, like very, very, very wide ranging cross disciplinary areas. So if you ever get into it, I would love to see like what conclusions and what ideas you could bring to the table. And and even if, you know, like Dr. Matt, like he's always open to like, I've had him on my podcast before to talk to people of questions or criticisms or just are wondering more about this field or have any opinions. So if you ever want to chat there, there's lots of people that I know that would, that would be willing to chat with you about it. Okay. All right. Yep. Um, so anyway, that's that's okay, the last COVID. 25 years of my life in, in 40 minutes. <laughs> All right, so, now, now, Alex, so I think I first – you you contacted me first because I had written this study, this Santa Clara uh, study uh, of antibody prevalence in, in Santa Clara County and found this result that uh, the COVID death rate was like 0.2%, steeply age – steep age grading with thousandfold difference for old versus young. And then that 3 or 4% of the of California metropolitan areas had already had COVID by early April 2020. That put me in the middle of this like ridiculous – I mean, yeah, the hate storm 
where people right. were convinced I didn't know how to divide. You contact me and you treated me fairly. Like I, you were like a reporter. It, you, you, I think you contacted me as a reporter. I'm not sure exactly what, I, I mean, it was a, a kind of a blur. Yeah, but. So I was, I was looking for data. And I think what was so striking to me about your data was you'd done this study. And then there was some data from LA County and there was some data from Miami. That I can't remember how the Miami study was done. I was the senior author of that study. Um, oh. but, the, but, but you're right. But the Miami group was independent. They found basically the same result. The same results. And I thought to myself, this is pretty striking that, you know, we're all, that, you know, all these places are coming in well below 1% for mortality. And we know there's this age gradient. And, you know, I, I would say basically, you know, that that those numbers have held up, right? I mean, yeah. You know, you can no longer, I mean, I know we continue to report deaths to this day, but like, I would say, wouldn't, wouldn't you say we're somewhere in the 0.2 to 0.3 range, um, lower for Omicron, uh, uh, and, um, and with that, with that monstrous age gradient. Yeah, no, that's, those numbers are true. Those numbers are right. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think like now that the population is, you know, very broadly, uh, immune, um, the numbers are lower now, but it, for like right. basically a hundred studies like that in 2020 found basically the same thing, 0. 0.2 to 0. 0.4 range. Um, yeah. yeah, maybe you can get to 0. 0.4, right? For I mean, the U.S. has a pretty sick uh, population. Yeah, I know. Like if you look at Africa, it's lower than 0. 0.2, like way lower than 0. 0.2. Yeah. So, so yeah. So I, I guess I contacted you and yeah, you were being ravaged and your, your wife too, right? And there was something yeah. like you'd, You'd put out a you. She'd send it to some Facebook group. I mean, it was just you were just getting attacked, and I was getting attacked then too. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so now, but you had a Twitter presence then, um, and uh, I, I I didn't have Twitter presence back then. But then you you I remember like following you. This was back when Twitter that you could you could you could like lurk uh, without actually having an account, and I, I would follow you, and yeah. it was quite cathartic. Like you had this. Uh, uh, these these alerts from Tony Fauci occasionally that you you put out. Um, uh, so what what led you to that kind of interaction? What like what what, what was going through your head in, in twenty in early twenty twenty? So so okay so I um so so this this virus we start to hear about it and and in January and February I was pretty nervous about it. I mean I write about this in Pandemia um uh and you know I. The, 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 you know, those videos coming out of China and this idea that like it's already spread from Wuhan and there's going to be, you know, a million people dead in, uh, in, you know, in Shanghai, you know, you know, it's in the mega cities now. And uh, this, by the way, this COVID is airborne thing that you still see on Twitter sometimes. We knew COVID was airborne in February 2020. The Chinese told people to open their windows to clear it out. I mean, it's you remember so the bizarre. Chinese restaurant? Uh- like study where we're like one guy at one end of the yeah. Chinese restaurant gets it, has it. And then there's a fan blowing and, it, and so the guy at the other end get, that was like February, 2020. I forget it was actually. Yeah. But I mean, before early. the Chinese were clearly told not to do any more research early on, they did some, some solid research. And that was the paper. There's a paper from April, 2020 that I, that I tweeted about showing that essentially outdoor transmission never happened. Um, that they, you know, they, they tracked 10,000 cases and they couldn't find one case of out or they found one case. I, I can go back and look, but essentially outdoor transmission was not an issue. So, okay. So March, 2020, and, and I read the, the Neil Ferguson Imperial College London paper. And I say to myself, the, the, a, the gradient here on age is crazy. So how dangerous can this really be? B, 
Are we really going to lock down the world? Are we really going to shut people in their apartments for, for months on end in New York City? Like, and, and by the way, like, are people who live in, you know, housing projects going to, going to accept that? Like, what's going to be the, um, you know, what's going to be the, the police response? Like, what's going to happen to all these kids who are at home? Like, it was very clear to me early by, I would say, the third week of 2020 that we were not considering this stuff in, in, in a societal context. And then, and then, and I, and I also realized something which I think has been borne out, which is that shutting people in their homes after the virus has been seeded is a really good way to get old sick people who might not be exposed, exposed from their children and grandchildren. That, 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 that essentially lockdowns are either always too early or too late. You do them too early, nobody's sick, maybe it works, but eventually you're going to have to deal with a new wave. You do it too late and you have this process of locking healthy people who are infected um, with, you know, with sick people and they can and they're going to transmit the virus to them. And I do think that happened in New York City. Also, also was very, very clear early on that there was a hospital transmission was a huge part of this, that healthcare facilities were a huge part of transmission and transmission vectors and that you didn't want to encourage people to be showing up in long lines outside New York City hospitals, especially, I mean, all of them, but especially the poorly run ones that, you know, where people, uh, you know, can wait for days on end, even under normal circumstances. So all these sort of like terrible and counterproductive decisions being made against a backdrop of increasing panic. And, and, and nothing highlighted this for me more than the models, okay, the the IC uh, the, the the IHME models, which really became the U, the U.S. standard models by by late March, okay, and 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 Cuomo, Governor Cuomo, the sainted Governor Cuomo, would put up uh, things showing there's going to be sixty thousand hospitalized people in New York State in fifteen days, and I mean that would have been, you know, New York State has I, I seventeen thousand beds, I, I I can go back and check the numbers, but it would have been catastrophic far more people would have needed hospitalization. And, you know, we're going to need a million ventilators or there's going to be a million people on ventilators, these crazy projections being made. And what I saw was the numbers that were being given for the day of didn't match the actual numbers. So the projections were not just off, like, in the future. You didn't have to wait for them to be off. They were off as of the current day. So if... So, and I thought to myself, if we're saying we need 40,000 beds, you know, today, and we actually only have 7,000 people hospitalized or whatever it is, how can we trust the projections going forward when, when they're, what they're based on is wrong? And so I started pointing this out and this was a comfort to some people on the right. Okay. This became, and so it became, Elon liked it. Um, and, you know, at the White House where they were sort of trying to figure out what to do, they started reading these tweets and they liked it and 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 it was incontrovertible okay and so and and people people then um like told me i was being an asshole okay so i was like you want me to be an asshole i'll be an asshole we'll do the department of pandemia okay that's you want me to you want me to start making fun of this while there are people dying then that's what's going to happen okay if you're not going to engage with me on these on these 
like incredibly important facts about our policy and what our policy response should be. If you're just going to tell me that I'm a grifter and I'm, I'm, what was I grifting? I was tweeting for free and that I'm a ghoul and I'm this and I'm that, then, then I'm going to lean into it. Okay. You are I mean, not going to scare that's me. The, that's, the, that's the striking thing, right? Like it didn't matter about facts at the point. I mean, I, I was, an incri- I mean, at that point, March, 2020, I was still just a, a naive scientist who's like, Oh, I think I'll do a study and the, like that'll <laughs> fix things. Um, I, you know, I still, just to be fair, I, I still do believe in the power of facts. I mean, I, don't think, I think like deriving them is a good idea and, and like trying to understand them is a good idea, but it did seem like people were not interested in facts at that point. The, the, they were scared, you know, of all the things that have been said to me in the last uh, you know, three years, um, the, ba- the, the single like most striking email I've gotten and I will never forget is somebody said, you know, I thought hate and love were the two most powerful emotions, but I was wrong. It's fear. And that's true. When you scare people, you can get them to do anything. Um, you know, so, so, so I look, I wanted to have a discussion about whether the school should be open. I wanted to have a discussion about whether lockdowns made any sense and what the IFR really was. And I did have those discussions. I did present those facts. But I decided fairly early on that it was also important to be a voice for all the people who wanted to say this, like, I'm not going to be afraid. And I'm not going to let you lock me in my house. This is the United States. I have the right to go outside. Maybe you're not going to let me work, but I'm going to go to the supermarket. I am going to let my kids be on the playground. I am not going to wear this useless piece of fabric, uh, you know, or, 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 you know, triple layer plastic on my (laughs) face. It doesn't do anything. We have, we have 30 years or more of study, 30 years. I remember finding the document from the California state health board from 1919, where a doctor said, you know what? Masks didn't work at all against the flu epidemic then, okay? Like, it it was stunning to me how much epidemiology and science we were throwing out, okay? Basically, and, and, and ultimately, as I write in Pandemia, there was really only two explanations for it. One was fear and the fact that it hit New York City and, you know, there were there were a lot of deaths in March 2020 and April 2020 in New York City. Probably a number of those were avoidable. Probably there was too much, you know, ventilator use early on. Probably, um, you know, I don't think we'll ever find out the truth. But you may remember that in Spain and Italy, there were literally people in nursing homes left to die. There was one case where the, you know, uh, an Italian, I, no, maybe it was a Spanish army unit found a nursing home where 200, you know, old people had died. No, basically, there's, there's been a documented to nurse, death. In Montreal, the same thing. And then it's documented, right? So it's like yeah. people people abandon their posts and, de- and patients with dementia dehydrated to death. That's right. And, you know, you die within a couple of days. And in, in New Jersey, I could go back and find, I think they found 70, you know, d- there was a nursing home where there were 70 bodies. It was crazy. So, 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 and, you know, those are all listed as COVID deaths. So, uh, so, um, uh, so that all of that was happening and, you know, all these, you know, nice New York Times reporters living in Brooklyn didn't go outside for three months or more. And they and they also all hated Donald Trump. Okay. They hated him. And so and I didn't and as I've written many times and every time I write it, my Substack audience, you know, yells at me about it. I don't like Donald Trump. I there's and I didn't vote for Donald Trump. Uh as I say in pandemia, I didn't vote for him 
2020. I didn't vote for Biden either. I didn't I didn't cast a vote. But so so all of this is happening. And I just decide I'm not going to back down. I, I don't have a job I can get fired from. Um, I have you know, I have money from the books that I've written. People I'm speaking for for millions of people who are afraid to say what they really think about this. And and maybe it's a minority. I mean, it certainly was a minority at that time. I mean, you know, if you look at the polls, 70% or more of the country, both parties were okay being locked down. But that still leaves a lot of people whose voices were not being heard at all. Alex, you know, the funny thing about it being a minority, I, I think among scientists, it's not – I mean, I, if you'd asked me then, was I in the minority, I would say yes. I would have said yes. I'm not certain that that's true, actually. A lot huh. of scientists were were scared themselves, and so they weren't acting like scientists. And second, a lot of scientists were, were were afraid to speak because they saw what happened to people that would try to develop data that they ran. saw what happened to you, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, and like, you know, hey, hey, guys, 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 one flag. Uh, we have less than an hour, and we got to talk about Missouri versus Biden and Berenson v. Twitter. Oh, we're getting there. We're getting there. We're getting there. Don't worry. So, um, just make, so, just make okay. it. No, I just, I just one one thing, but one point about this. Uh, in fact, this is a good segue for this. You were on Twitter, and uh, you were saying these things. And, and if, at the at the time, Twitter uh, and Facebook and all these other companies were in the middle of uh, you know you you like there's these FOIA emails that show up from from Zuckerberg to Fauci. Yep. Where in March 2020 or February 2020, he's offering up something. A lot of it's redacted, but but uh, services from Facebook and and. Fauci is too happy to accept. He's like, yeah, we should definitely do you know whatever the, the redacted thing is. And the censorship starts very soon thereafter. I, I would say there's a notable gap actually between Twitter and the other companies um, at that time. Twitter, you know, b- both conceptually, philosophically, you know, Jack Dorsey, Twitter was more independent. Twitter had a history. You know, they tried to stand up to government censorship all over the world. You know, they were sort of viewed as this, the, you know, famously, the famous comment when it was years before was the free speech wing of the free speech party. And they, you know, Facebook laid down, you know, and Google laid down. And by the way, I, another thing I think you have to realize is it was absolutely in these companies' financial interests. I mean, we, we forget that. The, 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 those stocks and those companies made boatloads of money in 2020. I mean, if, if, if your Facebook... This is the best thing that ever happened to you from a business point of view. And, and you know, they get a nobody even nobody talks about that. Like it's a, it, they they had every reason to try to keep people in their homes. And they've spent, you know, billions of dollars on brilliantly designed ad campaigns to do so. And so and so, I mean, here we are all talking on, a you know, on screen right now like that. That happened. So so, and, and you know, and Facebook. I mean, I realized the game was rigged with Facebook. They blew up this Michigan group in, you know, in April 2020. That was an anti-lockdown group with hundreds of thousands of members. They just they just said, you're you're inciting violence. You know, there had been one person who tweeted like, let's go get Gretchen Whitmer or whatever, you know, some some stupid nonsense. Um, And uh, and it was like, this group is inciting violence. We're taking it down. I don't even know if it was that bad, but, you know, it was it was something that shouldn't you know, that, that was that was problematic. And instead of just removing that or saying to the people on the group, like, we don't like this, they just use as an excuse to blow up the group. And they did that over and over again. And YouTube, even more aggressive, right? YouTube, which is owned by Google. So Twitter, 
sort of stood alone. Okay. And, and again, I would say that through March 2020, this was not really a, a partisan issue in that Republicans who skew, you know, older, for the most part, you know, as Trump was kind of blundering around and talking about hydroxychloroquine or whatever, they were mostly staying inside. And then, you know, George Floyd gets killed. And, you know, three days later, there's protests with 100,000 people in the streets. And the public health establishment says that's OK, because, you know, because anti-Black racism in the police is so important that it's a public health crisis bigger than COVID. Well, that was the end for a lot of Republicans, okay? It wasn't, I mean, listen, when I, I, I was all in favor of people being allowed to protest, whether it was protesting COVID or protesting George Floyd's death, okay? I didn't like the double standard. And, and a lot of Republicans didn't like, and again, I'm an independent, but that was the end for a lot of Republicans. I know it because I heard from them. So, so this then became starting with the Floyd protests, an incredibly politicized issue. And it has can remained I, that way. That's something I, I noticed in your, um, in, in your tweeting around this time, you, you, would, you would occasionally tweet that you had had conversations with, Facebook, with Twitter executives that encouraged you to keep doing what you were doing, like to, to keep, right. keep, keep with your, you know, t- tweeting the way you were doing, uh, sharing papers, uh, presenting alternative viewpoints. So can you, can you describe that process? Like how did, how did like who, how, what sure. was so, uh, so, you know, so Elon had retweeted me in March of 2020 and I sort of, again, rapidly became this, this like big anti-lockdown voice, mainly because there was almost nobody else, right? There were, I mean, you were doing some work. There were a few other people doing work, but people who were saying, you know, not just like that the IFR is low or infection fatality rate for those viewers who might, not be aware of that off the top of their heads, not just that the death rate from COVID is low, but that like we need a more um, nuanced policy response uh, and we can't shut down the world and, uh, you know, and we certainly shouldn't shut down schools and masks do nothing. Like, so, I mean, there were a few other people saying this, but there weren't that many. And so, uh, so I became this, this voice and Twitter in, May of 2020 said, hey, we're going to, uh, they essentially said, we're going to start uh, censoring more. I mean, they, what they were talking about at that time was uh, this, like, you know, COVID is a bioweapon designed by the Jews to kill, you know, everyone with blonde hair or whatever. Like, they, they didn't want that stuff on there. Now, you can argue as to whether or not if it's a town square that, you know, everything should be allowed. That's not sort of a personal incitement to violence. That's a separate argument. I wasn't doing that stuff anyway, so it didn't matter. But I said, um, uh, I said, look, I don't want to be censored. And, I, and the Twitter vice president reached out to me and said, we don't want to censor you, essentially. We think this is an important, uh, we can be an important place for conversation. And I said, that's great. I'm going to continue to you know, report facts and find studies and talk about them. And he was like, great. And that was May of 2020. And then... In in June, uh, uh, I wanted to publish my first unreported truths booklet, and I was you know going on Fox pretty regularly by this time, and nobody else would have me on. Okay, uh, and, and the, the the way I knew that the you know the portacollis had really dropped on me on the mainstream media it wasn't just that I that there were negative stories being written about me. It was that I was supposed to go on CNBC. I had a confirmed appointment to go on CNBC. 
and uh and they backed out at the last minute in i think that was june it was either may or june 2020 and i was like okay they're just not going to have me on anymore they just won't let me you know express this point of view so twitter and self-published booklets are going to be my outlet here i i wasn't really aware of substack at that time and so um and so uh so I tried to publish a, 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 a book, a Kindle self-publishing book uh, on Amazon, and they banned it. And I and I went public with that, and Elon supported me, and they and Amazon reversed the decision. And that booklet sold, you know, a couple hundred thousand copies in a month. Yeah, and, those, uh, those are great. Those are great booklets at the time. I remember that's kind of when I started taking interest. I'd those sort are really of like good. to write another one of those. Like that's you know, I'd like to yeah. write an update on the vaccines, an update on where we are. Again, now at this point, the Substack is such a beast; like it's it's basically all I yeah. have time for. But um, but so so that I would say I would say the booklet cemented my role in this, and, and you know that I was going to be the person going on Tucker. You know, I listen. I Jay, I don't know when your first appearance was, but that you know I was going to tweet stuff that was going to get retweeted a lot, and that to the extent there was somebody out there trying to make a credible case. You know, there were a few of us, but that I was going to be one of those leading voices, I would say. And, you know, not from the Republican point of view, just like here's 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 data showing that our policy response here is just completely screwed up. And with this. With this edge, sometimes, whether it was the your department of pandemia, whether it was the bulletins from Anthony Fauci, uh, you know, that 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 I was not going to be afraid to to put some mockery in there and and you know i and that incensed people too because it was this is very serious and there are a lot of people dying you know why don't you respect that and the answer is i do respect it but you are you've all become hysterical whether it's because you hate trump so much or whether it's because you're so afraid you become hysterical and sometimes the only antidote to hysteria is satire I mean, you and know, I'm funny, gonna be I would talk with uh, Martin Kuldorfer. Uh, I started to get to know him in in the summer of 2020, and we got to know each other pretty well, uh, like good good friends. Um, and uh, he actually early earlier in his life had uh, had served as a, essentially a human shield against this uh, this dictatorship in in Guatemala. He he'd been served as a, for the, the the Swedish group that served like as a human rights group. Huh. Uh, they would take young people, volunteer to go to Guatemala and and embed with left wing politicians who'd been threatened by right wing death squads. Wow! And uh, you know he's he's telling me this that like the like the main mechanism of going after authoritarians is mockery. Um, yep. And so I'd read your stuff it was like and and it felt like authoritarianism. My kids are out of school. These people are saying crazy things uh, that don't correspond with the facts. And people meaning like you know, the New York Times or, 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 or like, or politicians, and they're acting like authoritarians, like they're, 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 they're just ruling by decree from by emergency. What else can you do but make fun of them? I mean, the data, I think are important. You have to have an intellectual and honest basis for the mockery, but the, but the mockery actually, and it's not, not a skill that I have, but I, I was, I really enjoyed it, Alex, when you were doing it. <laughs> well, I, I, well, first of all, that's fascinating about Kaldorf, right? I mean, it's, you know, like, like Sunil, right? Like, like, these are and you too, right? I mean, you're all basically left wingers. Uh, I to a greater, I don't know what my <laughs> politics are anymore. <laughs> I have no idea. I, you know, I, and I'm just the you know I'm just sort of a, a like a skeptic slash contrarian in general. Um, but uh, 
you know, we've all been forced into the embrace of the right. I mean, I, I would say that's how I feel about it. Um, and, you know, and, and frankly, now that the, you know, the, the crisis is over, those folks, uh, you know, they put up with me, but, but they don't really like me. I don't think. <laughs> um, so, yeah. You, you exist in this weird middle space. Cause you don't really, you're not really part of the whole conservative side of things, right? Like, you know, but, but you're, you're, and you're definitely not part of the progressive side of things. Like, they <laughs> hate you. I mean, I mean, the, the left, the far left really hates you, the dominant corporate media narrative. And then people on the right, some of them are very, very comfortable to you. And then there's, you know, all the people in the middle, like the Joe Rogans, like they really like you, the Megyn Kelly sort of center right. Yeah. But it's like you, you, you really, you're just kind of somewhere in, in this middle space. Yeah, I just kind of floating through. Okay, so, through so space. Alex, let's 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 so, keep. So 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 yes. Darren Thompson at some at some point writes this Atlantic okay, so, piece calling you the the, the pandemic's wrongest, wrongest man, man. ridiculous. So so that okay, so that's 2021. That's post. Oh, that's 20, so, that's so throughout that. 2020, and as you say, I mean, there's this craziness. You the the the, the times you you refer to it as a Praetorian Garden. That's really true. Think about all the stuff that really was not talked about. The lab leaks, you know. That that issue like basically was off the table in 2020, and and you know Alina Chan, there was like good work being done, um, but that just was not taken. I wouldn't even say it wasn't taken; it was just ignored, right? It was just ignored. You know, you couldn't have an honest discussion about what the science around masks was like. And so, the, one of my favorite Twitter things was you know that those people would post um, all the like different requirements that had been like. Uh, you know, like Santa Clara says, masks outside, masks inside, masks for two-year-olds, but, you know, and, and, and it would be against the chart of cases. And you would just, there was just, it was just complete <laughs> randomness, right? Um, so, so, and then, you know, then the CDC would do a study with two hairdressers, literally two hairdressers, and it would get, uh, you know, a hundred thousand stories written about it. And so it just, I mean, it was so embarrassing in 2020. Okay. And I'm pretty comfortable. You know, I'm getting a lot of uh, hits on Twitter and, you know, the, the, the books are selling pretty well. Uh, uh, the You know, I, I'm sort of comfortable with where I am. Um, and I'm thinking maybe I want to write a full book about this. And then the vaccines. Okay. And like everybody else, I really say really like everybody else, when, the, when that data came out, when the first top line number came out from Pfizer, it was like, wow, we're done with this. Like, this is really great. Like, I don't really understand it. I have been paying attention to everything but mRNA for the last eight months. Um, I don't know anything about this, but we are done. We are, we, we beat this thing. And, uh, and that good, that good feeling for me lasted about three weeks until I started to look at the clinical trial design. And then I was like, oh my God. This is just bullshit. Like they didn't enroll anybody who was at real risk. I don't, I don't know how long this is going to last, but what I know is that the people who were vulnerable were not enrolled in these trials. So we can't have any idea if it actually halts death or serious injury or serious illness. Like that was actually my initial concern. Not that it didn't stop transmission, but that when you, if you're some 85 year old in a nursing home, is this actually going to work for you? Because uh, because your immune system is so beaten up, and and I knew that those were the people who were at risk, and and so and the more I read about mRNA, the less I liked it. I mean, it was very very clear this was a you know this was highly experimental technology. This was 
this was this had been at the beginning of 2020. This was, I would say, the most optimistic timeline would have been this is five years from any human use. I mean, outside of clinical trials. That's, that and, was my that and, was my reaction to in 2020, early 2020. It was like when I heard right, it. Right, we are we are a long way from this. This is not even DNA AAV where it's been. You know, there's been some testing, or is this, you know, this is Ebola vaccine. This is really this is really uh, novel biotechnology. And so, and, 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 and like, I knew enough to know that we were taking a big chance here and that even the, the size of the clinical trial matters a lot, but the duration matters even more. And we had just not, we just did not have the safety data that we needed on this. And we didn't have the efficacy data on older people. Okay. Whereas Eli Lilly, when they tested their monoclonal antibodies, they went to some nursing homes and they showed almost immediately this reduces death in the people who are most vulnerable. And that's the trial that you wanted run. And that's the trial that they should have run. And they didn't run it. And why didn't they run it? Because they, 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 they wanted an approval. And the regulators wanted, the, and this goes all the way back to what we started with an hour ago. The regulators wanted the approval too. Okay, so they just they did, and there's a there's this line that I found um, uh, with Ken Fraser, who's the head of Merck, which had its own you know vaccine and development and stopped, and he said something like, "You can you can produce an immune response. We know we can do that. It does not mean the vaccine works." Okay, and that is what basically the trials demonstrated. You get an immune response, and for a, for a short period of time, you suppress infection. Okay, it does not mean the vaccine works for any extended duration. And that was my point. Okay, two big points. A, that B, that means we shouldn't, A, we should look at what's happening in the real world very, very closely right now. And C, we shouldn't mandate this for people who are not at high risk from COVID. Now, I remember you, you, sent just, me a, you sent me like a, a, I think it was a pointer to some data from the Seychelles Islands. Like it's the first time I, 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 I Gibraltar, I Gibraltar, think. Gibraltar. That's yes. what it was. And yes. and then and it was like okay, heavily vaccinated, and yet there's this huge outbreak of cases. And then shortly after that, Israel had the same thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, place after place after place had this, and it's like spring 2021. I, I would say so. The first red flag actually was January 2021. It became very clear that these places, these small places that that had undergone aggressive vaccine campaigns, had this paradoxical increase in infection and yeah, death. Like, like you could you could put that off and say, okay, this uh, the Seychelles Islands, which was I, I think they used the Chinese vaccine. You're like, okay, well they just had the wrong vaccine, right? You could say over and over, but then Israel happens, and that's right. It's Gibraltar, by the way, used the mRNA too. I, I, Seychelles, I, I, I can't remember if it was Seychelles or Madagascar or someplace, but yes, there was some other place you're talking. No, I, I think I think broadly, you know, there's this issue where the first dose causes this transient immune suppression, and that may be true of all vaccines. I, this is this is where, like, I say I'm not a vaccinologist, I'm not an immunologist, I don't know, but I did see this happening. Okay, so that was January. So I started to say, look. This does not look very good, what's coming out of Israel. All right. Then, then you give people the second dose and you have what I called in pandemia and what I call to this day, the happy vaccine valley. Okay. There's this short period of time where after two doses of mRNA, you're, 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 you seem to be really protected. 
look at the number of cases and it goes down very fast. By the way, I found a very, very interesting paper just a few weeks ago, which I had never seen before, comparing Cyprus and Malta. And even, <laughs> even there, there's some suggestion that the mRNAs, like essentially the only people you really need to give them to are people over 80 and you get all the benefit you're going to get. But anyway, put it, put that aside. So we, we have this broad vaccination campaign and cases go down, infections go down, deaths go down very clearly. They go down in Israel, very clearly they go down in the UK more than the previous year. I mean, they get close to zero in late spring. And I'm saying like, look, there are these side effects, myocarditis and people, but people are saying to me like, and that's when Thompson, Thompson wrote his story. It came out, of course, April Fool's Day, 2021. The pandemic's wrongest man is this is really the last thing that's been written about me in the mainstream media in any significant way. Um, uh, and and he had asked me all these questions and I knew he was writing a hit piece, but I decided I would try to respond to them in a serious way. And I did. And his response to my response was not, hey, like, let's go through this again, because here's some stuff I disagree with you about. And here's some stuff. No, he just takes my answers tries to find people who will say they're wrong and publishes a piece. That is not real journalism, okay? Real journalism is when somebody makes a serious, when you ask people questions and they make a serious effort to respond, you include their responses. And if you have further questions, you go through the process again, you go through it as many times as necessary to, 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 to make it clear that this person has a point of view and you're not, you're not just trying. To, I mean, listen, if I had said like, the vaccines cause, you know, your head to fall off. Like that would have been ridiculous, but I, my answers were not ridiculous. They were serious and fact-based and footnoted. And, and, you know, Thompson didn't want to engage with that. So he just found people who would say negative things and he didn't come back to me. And I think that was a, you know, the, the Atlantic, the people running the Atlantic failed miserably. They shouldn't have done that, but it is what it is. It didn't matter. Um, and ultimately, that piece has become kind of a it's become kind of a joke because of everything that's happened in the last. Well, it's like years. it's for, it's it's your for me it's fringe epidemiology for for you. It's sort of, I mean, it's just so, you know. so you and I, Jay. Though I think we had a difference of opinion. I think you know, and I don't I, I don't want to speak for you, but certainly by the summer of 2021, as I was looking at the data coming, so 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 you have this few good months. And because Europe starts its vaccination process a little bit later than the UK, the US and Israel, the U Europe gets into the happy vaccine valley a little bit later. So it's a little harder to understand globally so, what's so, happening. So our, our difference between was in spring 2021. That's right. Because you you were you were you were you were showing me these data. And I was like, okay, I don't know yet. Let's let's wait until the, the, the epidemiological studies come in. By summer of 2021, the epidemiological studies had come in. And the protection against infection lasts two, three months at most. You could see the Qatari uh, study. I would say with the first go run, it lasts four or five. You could, that's you, it. Could, you could make that argument, but like the efficacy starts to drop pretty sharply. Yep. Uh, and so you're like, okay, I'm, so I'm like, okay, you can't use this vaccine to get to, to, to eradication, for instance. You can't use right. this vaccine. You can't even assume that someone that's vaccinated is less likely to pass the disease on because immunity after COVID recovery is really important. And none of these, none of the, no, no one's taken that into account. Right? That's so right. Like, and so like, I, and, and I actually worked on a whole bunch of legal cases, anti-mandate legal cases where I documented this in, in the summer of 2021. 
Um, yep. And I was like, you know, Alex was right. He was Alex. I mean, I remember I think I called you up and I, I said, look, uh, yep. Alex, you were right about this. Um, where, where we and, I, and again, I think we may even still disagree about this a little bit is I don't think there's much protection from death after the protection from infection fades. I, yeah, I, I think we I think that the 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 healthy vaccine vaccine the healthy vaccine effect is so powerful that you cannot tell. In other words, in other words, Rob, vaccines are preferentially given, even the COVID vaccine, to people who are healthier than not. Okay. And, and, and yes, you can say, Hey, if you're some middle-aged person, um, you know, maybe your doctor pushed harder if you had diabetes or if you were obese to get the COVID vaccine, but there's this, there's, so that would be anti-healthy vaccine effect, but there's this tiny group of people near the end of their lives who are not vaccinated under any circumstance. They're in hospice, they have, you know, late stage cancer, and that group of people accounts for a huge amount, both of all-cause mortality and COVID mortality. And those people get lumped as unvaccinated because they are unvaccinated. Alex, to have a randomized trial to clear this up? I mean, that would be fun. That would have been nice, huh, Jay? And And so you see this with the flu vaccine, and I can point you to very good epi data on the COVID vaccine that suggests the problem is at least as bad or worse. And so to me, you simply, you can't say, that these vaccines, once they stop working against infection, stop working, do anything to reduce severe outcomes. I don't okay, so see I'll, the proof. I'll, I want to make sure we hit Missouri versus Biden. So yes. before that, we need to get to uh, to Berenson versus versus. <laughs> okay. So, so long story short, uh, they they kicked me off. So so it, by Twitter by does. March. Yes, by March, Twitter was under the same kind of March twenty twenty one. Okay. Twitter was coming under the same kind of pressure as Facebook and um, and Google. Okay, they Dorsey was Dorsey was out to lunch. He was in the you know Tahiti with his model girlfriend and running Square, and he had eighteen other things to do. Twitter was in the hands of uh, a bunch of hyper left wing uh, you know managers in, in San Francisco. Elon is certainly right about that who were sort of not ideologically disposed to protect free speech. And at the same time, the pressure is ratcheting up on them. They are hearing from the White House a lot. They're hearing from the CDC. They're hearing from the media. The, the media is wants them to censor me and other people. And me in particular, they hated me because, because I wasn't now just the anti-lockdowner or the anti-masker. Now I was the anti-vaccine. And I was the anti-vaccine guy who wasn't talking about 5G or magnets. I was the one saying, like, let's look at this data coming out of Israel. Or how about myocarditis? Like, all this stuff that, you know, as Andy Slavitt wrote, uh, or maybe it was Flaherty in that email. I can't remember which one. He's in the White House also. The persuadable public. Okay. I guess it was Slavitt who told Twitter. I, I was persuading people. Okay, I was and I was, you know, and I was saying, look, the WHO, oh, this there were, by by June of 2021, the WHO had said, like, don't vaccinate kids with this vaccine. I mean, that they basically said it like that. And I pointed it out, and that was another, you know, storm. And less than 24 hours after I pointed that out on Twitter, they had changed the language so that it said the same thing, but in slightly different, slightly more couched language. Okay. So so 
So from my point of view, what was happening, so from their point of view, what they would say and what they did say was, we got to get all these vulnerable people in the South vaccinated against Delta. There are people who are unvaccinated who are dying who we can save. Okay. Maybe, maybe not. It is true that that in the summer of 2021, most of the people who died were unvaccinated. But again, I will say to you that the healthy vaccine bias is so powerful, it's hard to know what to make of that. And in countries where they got a little bit more, you know, where they got a few more people vaccinated, like Britain, the majority of deaths were in the vaccinated by late summer into the fall of 2020. So we can argue that point. Yeah, From the, my I mean, point of view, they just had a, a political problem, not a medical problem. The like, political problem was that they had, promised, they had promised the vaccines were going to end the epidemic. And okay, by so July... One, one, yes. one, one quick point before, I, before you move on to that. Um, yes. I mean, I think I think we can disagree, uh, and uh, like, and, and but this is the kind of disagreement that normally happens in science, right? You are looking at data, I'm looking at data. We're like interpreting it differently. We're we're trying to maybe we have different methods of of, of analyzing it. These are completely legitimate questions to have as a point of scientific discussion, even in public. It's right. a completely yet Twitter is now suppressing you from expressing your point of view uh, because because why? Why did I, especially well, so, after- so, 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 okay. So they would say, we got to get everybody vaccinated. He's in the way of that. Now, by the way, even if they're completely honest and that's really what they thought too bad. Okay. I'm an American. I have free speech rights. Twitter is a giant public space. It is my most important avenue to the, to, to, you know, to speak to people and to the government. They should not be pushing Twitter to ban me anymore. Then and this is the analogy you know we're using and I will will use in Berenson v Biden uh, you know if 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 the White House has a press conference at a private hotel they can't tell that hotel not to let me in because they don't like the questions I'm going to ask if I'm an accredited reporter or even if I'm just a person in there who wants to yell a question it's not okay to use this third party to try to suppress my free speech rights it's not so. So, but so, so they wanted me quieted and for, and, but from my point of view, I don't even think that's why. Okay. I think they had a political problem and the political problem was they promised people that the vaccines would work. Okay. And as late as May, May was peak overconfidence, May, 2021, Fauci said, I believe we can eradicate this virus in the United States, which was just so stupid and so wrong. Okay. And they by 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 July, everyone who knew where to look was looking in Israel, and it was clear the vaccines were failing. That meant boosters, and it meant for reasons that I don't really understand. They wanted mandates too. Maybe they thought they could get to herd immunity. Maybe they just wanted to increase the pressure on people who were unvaccinated and sort of demonize them more. They, to me. Those were terrible ideas. One was a terrible idea scientifically. The other was a terrible idea constitutionally and politically. And I didn't. And I was going to speak out against those to, with every breath that I had. And they didn't like it. And they, they essentially forced Twitter to ban me. Okay. And so, and so the first strike, you know, was was literally a few hours after Biden said that the social media companies were quote unquote killing people, and they gave me two more strikes very fast. And then for whatever reason, 
in August of 2021, I was sort of on life support, but I was continuing to tweet and I actually had more followers than ever, a bigger audience than I've ever had on Twitter. And then uh, Scott Gottlieb at Pfizer, he's a Pfizer board member, former head of the FDA, goes to Twitter and says, this guy is dangerous to Tony Fauci, a total lie. And, uh, and, um, and Twitter bans me like a few hours after that. And so, and they, and that was, you know, I sue Twitter in, um, and, and let me tell you, that was not just cutting off my voice. It was, they wanted to hurt me, to shame me. Uh, you know, they said that I had, you know, violated their free, their policies around COVID misinformation. Um, you know, they defamed me, uh, and, you know, I mean, people that's, like that's a, that's a that's a really important point. Right. Because it's, it's not just censorship. The point is that the act of being censored, essentially, uh, it's like a negative credit score, a negative social credit score. Right. That's the purpose I, of the censor. I, I was forced off the board of City Harvest, which is a food rescue charity in New York that I'd been a member of for basically my whole life. I mean, really, since I was a teenager, I was their longest donor. And I'd been on the board for 10 years. I lost many friends. Um, uh, it was, um, I, you know, I'd say more than half the people I was friends with at the beginning of this were, were not talking to me by the time Twitter kicked me off uh, or shortly after. And, and most of those people have not come back. Um, it, was, it was a public shaming. It was intentional. It was designed to show people this is what happens if you speak out against the vaccines. Um, and it was, you know, and the, it would have been wrong even if I'd been wrong about all of it. The fact that I have been sort of proven right yeah. about, again, we can argue about this one issue about whether or not the vaccine stops severe illness and death. So, so, so you can argue about that, but, but, but the, okay, so you, you know, the final tweet, right? The final tweet, Jay, it doesn't stop infection or transmission. That's yeah, what I was paying for. The final tweet is correct. 100% correct, Alex. It was so, so, okay. So, um, you sue Twitter and uh, you you do this discovery and what do you find? Well, I sue Twitter in December 2021 and legal Twitter, lefty Twitter uh, uh, and a few uh, other places say, oh, this, you know, he doesn't have a chance. This is a dumb lawsuit. He's again, he's just doing this to raise money. Uh, and and we were lucky. We got a judge who, by the way, is a Clinton appointee, a Democratic judge, but who was uh, smart and independent and fair minded. And he basically said, look, Twitter gave this guy these assurances like they modified their contract with him. And I depended on this. You know, I I uh, I built a big audience with them telling me explicitly, like, we're going to be fair to you. We're going to apply our. And, and so. Even though we say we can kick you off for any reason or no reason, you're depending on our assurances. And the the analogy the judge used, which I thought was really smart, was let's say um, I've paid rent. You know, I, I'm in an apartment and my lease says the landlord can kick you out 24 hours after the first of the month if you don't pay your rent on time. And I've paid it late and I've been in contact with the with the landlord for years. And, you know, I, I, I've told the guy, Hey, you know, today it's going to be in on the four, you know, this month it'll be in on the fourth. Is that okay? Yes, it's okay. You know, this month it's the sixth, this month I'm on time. And then one day I'm a day late and he has not returned my emails. And I come in and find that, you know, all my stuff's on the street. 
and that my the locks are changed. And the guy says, that's what the contract says. Well, the judge said there's no court in California that would agree that that was, you know, sort of legally OK, because because your actions over the last you know years have shown that you've modified this contract in a way that that uh, that I, the tenant, depended on. Well, I'm sort of Twitter's tenant. And um, and, you know, we have this contract that they drew up that's very favorable to them that they then told me, hey, we're going to follow these rules. And um, uh, and, you know, if you tweet accurately about covid, uh, we're not going to kick you off for that. And so um, so he, the judge said even Section 230 doesn't overcome that 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 case. And so he denied Twitter's motion to dismiss my lawsuit and he allowed me to get discovery. And as we now know, Twitter was very, very concerned about this. They were and we still don't know exactly what's in the documents that they're so concerned about. We've gotten some of the documents, not all. So Twitter wanted to settle with me. And I and I was of two minds about settling. There were there were there. I mean, I wanted to get back on the platform because I thought I still had important stuff to say. I still wanted discovery. I wanted to know if the White House was talking about me. Um, uh, I wanted Twitter to acknowledge that it had made a mistake. And so, um, and my lawyers said to me, look, we can move forward with the lawsuit. You may win, okay? It's San Francisco, but, you know, so that's not going to be a favorable place, but you may win. Um, but you, it's not clear legally that, that a judge can force Twitter to let you back on, even if you do win, much less get a statement, much less, um, you know, you're going to have to show that you actually, you know, got, were damaged in a, you know, uh, damaged financially. Um, you know, what are your damages? So all these reasons suggest that if Twitter is willing to let you back on um, uh, and, and, and give you the discovery that you want from the White House, Another discovery is a for 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 listeners who may not know, when you have a civil trial, if you survive the motion to dismiss, um, you can you can ask the other side to provide documents that will will be relevant to the case. So, in other words, like how did Twitter treat me? How did it make these decisions? What conversations were being had internally? Um, and so, and you know, I have to provide the same stuff. Although in my case, it's just one person. I don't really have very much, you know, I mean, it's the, the, my discovery process would have been quite easy. Um, and, and large companies hate this. And then there's depositions where you have to, you know, testify under oath to what it is that you knew. You have to answer questions from my lawyers. I have to answer questions from your lawyers. And, you know, as Fox News discovered, um, the discovery process when, especially when it's a big company, like you don't really know necessarily what's in those files. You just know it can be bad. So big companies don't like to be stuck with discovery. So once you survive the motion to dismiss, it's a very powerful force as an individual plaintiff to have this. So, so what I wanted, what I really wanted was to know whether Twitter had come under pressure from the White House or the WHO or Pfizer or elsewhere. Okay. And, and, um, and it was not, uh, it was not clear to me that, well, that, and I want to be able to publish that stuff. I want to be able to publish whatever I found. 
And we also knew that Twitter, even after it turned over, the stuff was going to ask for protective orders saying that I couldn't publish it. So, so my, the reason I agreed to settle the case was I got the internal documents or the, the documents showing the pressure that Twitter had come under from the White House. And I got the right to publish it. And I got back on and I got a statement from them. So, uh, so to me, that was a pretty good settlement. Now, had I known internally that they were saying, we think we're going to lose this case, as I just discovered a, you know, a few weeks ago, I might have pushed even further or not settled at all. But, but it is a poker game and you don't know what you don't know. So, yeah. so, so and I will say this, Jay, I think the most important documents that in Missouri v. Biden are those couple of emails showing not that like not that you didn't come under pressure, not that Martin didn't come under pressure. No, but I, but but you know we have individual. I'm the person who like you have somebody from the White House individually asking to be banned. Yeah, Rob, Rob and, Flaherty and, sends an, an email to I think it was like actually Facebook folks saying uh uh you know and, and actually also Twitter we also like have with from the White House to Twitter or the or the FBI to to, to Twitter. Yeah. Um, saying like say essentially they're saying like remove these people, censor yeah. these ideas, or else if you don't yeah. do this, we we have regulatory power over you. We can so the, the, it's it's you know the, the White House essentially played the, the the role of mob boss. The 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 strength of that opinion in Missouri v. Biden, or not the opinion, but the the memo supporting the opinion is, and I don't know if you know who Stephen Carter is, but he's a he's this you know Yale Law professor, very smart, and I I don't think anybody would call him conservative. Um, it lays out how much interference there was and how long it went on, and so the White House might say, you know, aside from this one time with Berenson. We didn't ever ask for anybody specifically to be banned. But what you get is the accumulation of pressure. And I don't from these companies that are very highly regulated, that have this incredible liability protection that was openly at issue. And so I don't see how anybody can say that the White House wasn't putting significant pressure on them once you read the whole decision. And that, to me, is why I think it's going to stand up. I mean, we'll see. But it's not it's not one time or one day. It went on and on and on. The weird yeah, and with like, remember, was it days before you got kicked off that Biden was talking about social media companies being responsible for killing people for not? So that was stuff? so that was July. That was what started the. Pro- I mean, you can. I, I think in my case, it's very striking because in March of 2021, that was or April, that was the first time. That you know, Slavit went to them and put pressure on them. Slavit, and just so, so, so for the audience, Andy Slavit was the um, uh, was like the White House advisor for the COVID response, a very senior position in the White House, and he was the former head of like Medicare, me, uh, and had been the head of Medicare. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, sort of a, a Democrat who is one of these uh, you know healthcare functionaries who's made you know uh, you know twenty million dollars over the years. He's not a doctor. He's you know he's 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 in the he's in the system. Um, And so uh, he he didn't like me. I I made fun of him a lot on Twitter. And he and he knew he knew that I was, you know, a loud voice against against all of it and uh, and certainly against the mandates. And so he wanted Twitter to ban me. 
And Twitter came back to him and said, we're not going to ban this guy. We think he's applying, you know, he's, he's going by our standards. But that didn't stop the pressure. The pressure continued publicly and privately. And finally, in, in, in August, starting in July, they started taking public action against me. And by, by the end of August, I was gone. And that was, there's no question that the, that, that followed the pressure from the White House and from Scott Gottlieb and Pfizer. And so, so, so now I, I have sued uh, Biden directly um, and the case uh, has now gotten shuffled to its third judge in New York State. Or, you know, it's a, it's a federal case, so it's a Southern District of New York. And um, we, uh, we will be hearing back from Pfizer and Slavin and the White House in, um, in August. And, and so, so, you know, there was Berenson v. Twitter, there's Missouri v. Biden, and now there's Berenson v. Biden. And going, going back to Scott Gottlieb, you mentioned him. It's just incredible that, I mean, we don't know for sure, but the day of, right, he's going to Twitter saying that you're being dangerous towards Fauci. It, it's incredible that Twitter is potentially taking a directive from a board member of a pharmaceutical company to censor someone. Like that is yeah. just, wow, it's, that's crazy. It's, pretty, it's, it's stunning. It's that's stunning. so crazy. Yes. Um, I mean, but, so like this seems like remarkable to me. Like, like, like just they're trying to put it in the in in the context of American history. There's not that many instances in American history that are worse than this. You know, I don't know the Alien Sedition Act uh, in terms of like free speech violations. You know, the, the Espionage yeah. Act of 1917. I mean, there's just not that. There's uh, and and of course that you know to bring it back to New York Times. New York Times very famously, after it published the Pentagon Papers in the 1970s. Uh, 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 detailing is the secret history of the of the of the Vietnam War. Yeah. Um, they, 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 there's that there's that case. Uh, was it Sullivan versus uh, New York Times that that establishes the right of the press to, uh, to, to 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 report on these kinds of things that the government doesn't want reported. But here, so I, th- I think Sullivan is the is the libel case, and oh, it's the no, I'm sorry, yeah, I'm sorry, I, I, my it's, bad. You're right. You're right. But yeah, there's but yeah, a, you're right. No, there there can be no prior restraint. There's no um, prior, there's yeah, a that, prior I, I, I'm bad with like no, it's, a, it's, a, it's it's but, not but your, the point is like, there's 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 this 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 like long long tradition in American history of 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 pushing in favor of of free press free speech, and yet you have now the the press on the side of censorship, yep, of of being in favor of of you being suppressed or me being censored. It's it's, yep. it's just been astonishing to watch. Like you know, they they the the press operates under the protection generated by 200 years of of jurisprudence that allows it to operate freely, and yet when oh. it comes to independent journalists like you, I mean, what what uh, like so how no, do you I, I, you 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 said it? It's crazy. Listen, they 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 won't even write about my case, and you know, with Missouri v. Biden, yes, they I mean they had no choice but to write about it, but it was all I mean it's so funny to me, Jay, right? Because the way it's covered is. This is going to be horrible and it's going to allow all kinds of misinformation and disinformation. But at the same time, they weren't actually doing anything wrong. So like which like if if it didn't matter what they were saying, then what does it matter if they're not allowed to say it anymore? Right. Um, and but in my case, I mean, it really is incredible. Listen, strictly from a business point of view, I can promise you that, you know, the lawyers at Facebook and the lawyers at Google and the lawyers at Twitter, when the day judge also refused to decline uh, or to 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 agree to Twitter's motion to dismiss, I guarantee you 
that all those companies throughout Silicon Valley said, do not have individual contacts with individual users that when you promise them anything outside of our terms of service, because we don't want to get into this mess ever again. Strictly from a business point of view, it's an interesting story. Plus, there's sort of the man bites dog aspect. Nobody had ever been restored following a successful ban lawsuit. Yet these people, they wouldn't write about it and they won't write about all the stuff that came out in, you know, from the documents that we got. And, they, and, and, you know, yes, the only thing they've been willing to write about is Missouri v. Biden. But again, the language has all been, this is so apocalyptic for these companies. It's even there. It's so strange. It's like the, the, the coverage about, about the, the decision, the July 4th decision by the judge in Missouri v. Biden, Judge Dowdy, um, has been, I mean, just, just surreal. Like the, 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 the argument that the, um, that the, the administration is making is that if they don't have the power to censor, then, then people will die from misinformation. Right. But, you know, if you look at actually what happened, the, the government used its power to censor to protect itself from criticism of its own misinformation. <laughs> uh, yep. You know, and, and it's always like this, right? It's always governments say that they want to be able to censor because it's so important that they have that right to do so to protect the public. But in fact, the whole purpose of the First Amendment is be, and the whole reason why it exists is because we can't trust governments with that power. They will abuse it just as just as they did during this pandemic. I, you know, we were talking at the beginning, but I think before uh, we started recording about, you know, Churchill or, um, uh, you know, Roosevelt, he made the famous four freedom speech. And I believe the first freedom is freedom of speech, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom from want, freedom from fear, the four fundamental freedoms of, you know, that everyone in the world should have. And the first of those is freedom of speech. Yeah. And, you know, going back to the media blackout, I want to bring this up, obviously. I mean, as you know, Alex, I mean, so there was the media blackout and mainstream institutions didn't want to cover you. But then when, you know, freelancers like myself, I don't know if there's others, but when I tried to write about you, the message was, quote, we're steering clear of Berenson. We're moving on from vaccines. We don't want to cover this. I tried to pitch a story about Berenson uh, to my senior editors, and they said no. It's like, and I and I tried this repeatedly, like July yep. of 2021, uh, August, and the Scott Gottlieb stuff, which I think came out later that year. Each yep. time, I was just like trying, like, hey, like this is you should be covering this story. This is very very important, and it highlights an interesting intersection between you know pharma, government power. And COVID science, all, all these areas are being hit, and especially the, the free speech stuff, because this guy's a journalist, and his free speech matters for the freedom and for the overall, uh, you know, just the integrity of our institutions and of individual reporters being able to to write about important topics. Like, this is a very interesting issue with very serious ramifications for free speech and for, you know, journalistic credibility and how people trust institutions. But the the overwhelming response was, no, we're, we're steering clear of him, which to me was just, I, I felt like, like, I, like this isn't real. <laughs> yeah. Well, people, you know, people don't like me. And uh, I think the fact that the Substack has worked well and been successful has not helped um, because I'm supposed to be sort of like in disgrace and begging for, you know, crumbs and begging to get my job back. And instead I have a fairly, you know, I have a successful Substack with a lot of readers. I mean, and, you know, and I do thank Substack. Substack has been a place that has uh, 
you know, stood for free speech. And they even, you know, even in the worst of it, even in the fall of 2021 into the winter of 2022, um, they never said a word to me. And they, you know, they came under pressure from people uh, who, who, you know, who was, oh, you know, there, this is the last, you know, place for the deplatformed and does Substack want to be associated with this guy? And, you know, they, they were clearly committed to free speech and, and are. Um, and, you know, I do want to say like, oh, look, I'm not, I'm not COVID vaccinated. Okay. And, um, and I think for people in 2020 who ultimately got vaccinated in 2021, even, you know, people like, and I, you know, I, I not to speak for you guys, I think your vaccinate doesn't matter. People in, in your position or in, in the position of being skeptics in 2020, who then got vaccinated, 2020 was sort of the worst year. 2020 was the year of the lockdowns and and the year of uh you know school closures and the year of the political process being completely uh off the rails but for those of us in in my position it was the fall of 2021 was much worse because we were truly being ostracized and and i did want i mean i couldn't go into a into a restaurant in new york city i i, I wondered if i would ever get on a plane and fly internationally yeah. again i wondered if Same you were here. gonna have to uproot my family and go to florida i mean it, it, it felt it, it i felt truly ostracized and hated and i mean and there were stories written if you get covid and you're unvaccinated you don't deserve medical care um i mean there, there was a study done i'd have to go back and find it i think it was in early 2022 showing that you know, it was the uh, it was the vaccinated who hated the unvaccinated. I mean, and hated is not too strong a word. And and our government tried to foment that. I mean, and, and by the way, it was worse in Canada. It was worse in places in Europe. It was much worse in Australia. I mean, this, this small minority of people who said, "I'm going to stand up for my rights as a you know as a sane adult to choose what enters my body." We were treated like pariahs. It should, it must yeah. never happen again like that. And I don't care if you think the vaccines were the greatest thing ever and somehow they're just getting a bad rap. I mean, I don't know who actually still believes that at this point, but whatever you think about the vaccines, no, the, it was, it was, the, the demonization must never happen yeah. again. I mean, that was, that was, I, I, I'm here in Vancouver, right? And so here I couldn't go to a gym, restaurants, large gatherings, trains. Couldn't leave the country for a while. My parents were also unvaccinated. You couldn't get on a plane, they, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. It, it was so nuts. My parents wanted to visit relatives in India, and you know, and my mom really wanted to do certain family stuff going on. She, she couldn't go. It's like it's that so was just that was that was incredible the way that they prohibited our rights. It's so deeply unethical. It's almost shocking. I, I mean, I, I, it, I almost it is shocking. Like it's 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 like a violation of informed consent. It's like basic basic ethics of in medicine, which uh, is you know, willy nilly violated. And I think, um, you know, it's, it's one of these things where like, uh, you now see people saying, well, no, that wasn't coercion. Yeah. Every, every action has consequences. I mean, come on. That's yeah. just ridiculous. Coercion. Literally. It was pure coercion. Yeah. They people literally... need to be able to support themselves. Like, I mean, the, you know, the, the work requirements and the, and the school requirement, you know, the, the university requirements were pure coercion. And look, they're very lucky. Jay, I remember you and I talking about, you know, there there is going to be a death from myocarditis in an Ivy League school. Fortunately, it looks like the myocarditis was, in, I mean, look, there were definitely people who died, but that, you know, in most cases, it was relatively mild and people recovered. So they haven't had to deal with the true 
you know, pain that might have happened from these unethical mandates. They're they're lucky about that. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm not I'm not sure about the recovered thing though, Alex. Like there was the recent case of the 28 year old basketball player who yeah. had recovered from myocarditis, assuming that those facts are are true. Um, but then he later died of a, a sudden cardiac arrest when he was doing his exercise treadmill test. Like, like this whole yeah. thing about like, well, people just recover in a couple months. Well, I've I mean I, I've done some reporting. Uh, at least, you know, one local law enforcement member who, you know, seven, eight months out still hadn't recovered. I mean, it's, you know, and what is it? And Alex, what, what does it also mean by recovery from myocarditis? I mean, are there implications for that years down the road, right? If you right. have, is there a scarring you know, of heart? Yeah, like, like, is there, there's, there's big unknowns there. Let me read it's, a quote from Justin Trudeau, your, your prime minister from December of 2021, just to give a sense of, of, of the kind of thinking that led to the censorship. Um, and and the and and the and the mandates and all all the nonsense. So this is Justin Trudeau, Canadian Prime Minister, December 2021. Uh, we are going to end this pandemic by proceeding with the vaccination. There's still a part of the population fiercely against it. They don't believe in science or progress and are very often misogynistic and racist. They take up some space. This leaves us as a leader and as a country to make a choice. Do we tolerate these people? I mean, so insane. When I when I heard yeah. that from my prime minister, I'm like, what the hell, man? Especially when you have so many minority groups here in Canada and the U.S. that had higher rates of vaccine hesitancy, like here in the South Asian yep. community. You know, there was a lot of questions within the black community in Canada yep. and the U.S. Obviously, yeah, the US. Yep. it was it was. Yeah. Well, these people like what is what is that? What kind of language is that from leader? I mean, what it betrays is this, this is almost like unthinking bigotry like it's just it's it just it's and 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 an absolute hatred toward toward people that that, that wouldn't agree with their, their uh his methods or his or his, or his uh, and you know in canada um the censorship regime is not that hasn't been checked by because canada doesn't have a first amendment right uh, there are these bills like uh, bill c11 and c18 that are actually i think putting those kinds of of, of power in into place in canada permanently yeah um, I mean, the, the United States, maybe, I mean, maybe it's like, it's just amazing that we have a First Amendment that, that, that allow, has allowed us to push back against this, this entire, this regime. Um, but the, the, much of the Western world has gone the opposite direction. It's, it's, yes. it's institutionalized the power of government to coerce social media and to, 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 to force it to, uh, to, to uh you know, to, to allow the government to use its power to, 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 to suppress speech that criticizes it. Um, and so I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I'm hopeful, I'm finally hopeful for the first time in a long time, seeing Missouri versus Biden. And I hope with uh, with Berenson versus Biden that we have some some pushback in the United States. But uh, I don't know, uh, Rob, in Canada, if, the, if we're going to see that. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, Alex, I just want to spend a quick minute. I know we have to go soon about like the media blackout thing. Like you had coverage from, I think, the Epic Times. There was a couple things in the New York Post. I think, I think Miranda yeah. Devine, she did a thing, which wasn't the, the headline. It wasn't about you, but you were included. I think later on, this bigger piece on censorship. Yeah. Um, but otherwise, you know, you did not get like, yeah. I, like I remember going through like Google or DuckDuckGo, like looking like, has anyone like, is anyone covering Alex? And it's like, the Atlantic wrote, crazy. Believe it or not, the Atlantic wrote a piece uh, uh, where they, which uh, about my return to Twitter. Um, oh, which was yeah they did it's from august of 2021 you can okay. or 2022 i should say august 2022 because it's post the settlement where uh it, it was and actually it was very useful to me because slavic made a statement in there that um uh that is sort of not going to work to his advantage in the lawsuit um 
uh, which I will not, you, you can find it in, in there and you can find, we mentioned it in, in our complaint in Berenson v. Biden. Um, and so, but that was it. That was it. And remember, I worked for the New York Times for 10 years. Yeah. I'm a reporter, like, and, and nobody questioned my stories or my, you know, my accuracy or anything like that. I have proof in black and white that the White House asked a social media company to ban me. And no one will write about it. It's really, it's really amazing. Um, by the way, you know, we, and, and Jay, Jay, I know probably doesn't want to talk about it. And, 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 I, and I don't even want to like, I know we have almost no time left. You know, I do think the jury is out on the, forget efficacy, on the safety of the vaccines, the long-term safety. Some of the, uh, you know, some of the death numbers, certainly last fall following the booster campaigns, I think in Europe and, and Australia, um, uh, we're, we're, we're quite troubling. Um, I, I'm not saying that there's some like long-term, you know, die-off happening, but I do think, uh, I think there's going to be almost no uptake of future mRNA COVID boosters. And I think the health authorities should be actually very- already wasn't Alex. I mean, like, what is it? 15% or 20% of the American public actually took the boosters in the last- Took the, took the bivalent. Yeah. And it was yeah. only 40% of people over 60. I mean, but you know, I, I, I think- Alex, Alex, just, so just on the, on the, on the side effects, I, it's, it's not, I mean, I think, um, we're finding things out, right? So like, uh, yeah. I just saw a paper in science about, uh, uh, retinal problems caused by the vaccine. Yeah. Um, there, then there's, and there's, and you know, of course, there, of course, I think myocarditis is pretty, pretty well established. I, I'm not convinced that there was a mass off. I just don't, I don't. The, no, no, I, I, the, I agree with that. I agree with that. I mean, and by the way, mass off, we're talking about a marginal, you know, like maybe a 10% increase in deaths over the course of a year. It's going to be very, very hard to separate, you know, post COVID and, and everything else from, and, and obviously in the U.S. we have this terrible problem with opioids. So I think it's very, very hard to unravel. I do think, you know, again, two things. I mean, you mentioned retinal. I think there's there's clear evidence of sort of microvascular complications, um, and there seems to be some evidence of autoimmune disorders. The problem is, of course, that the serious serious scientists don't want to look at this stuff. Also, and the, really, also the menstrual issues. The menstrual issues. The menstrual issue, yeah. Again, so yes, no, I no. would agree with that. So serious scientists don't want to look at this. So the, to the extent we're getting research done, it's coming out of places like Japan, which is fine. Like Japan's an advanced country, but we're not getting the research done in the U.S. that needs to be done. And so instead, you have this crazy group of died suddenly turbo cancer people who are not credible. And and so, you know, it's the, it's the same people who two years ago were talking about magnets and 5G. And so we have a problem we we aren't doing the research that we you know in a serious world we would be looking to see like okay you know the vaccines didn't cause mass die-offs or anything but did they cause a significant number of people to let's say develop uh you know some kind of autoimmune condition yeah, and the, are they causing microvascular complications yeah, yeah, it's so slow uh, maybe even i mean like just it's like almost willfully blind right it's yes. crazy uh, and, and, and it, I, I think it is. i mean i don't think it's kind of i think it is it's willful blindness yeah. on the part of these I mean, regulatory authorities we're still waiting on that subclinical myocarditis study it was supposed to come out in december i think it was june 30th was supposed to come out i think moderna yeah. dose three the subclinical and I, i'm i'm really looking forward to seeing you know what and what about the pregnancy on. you know the pregnancy yeah. study that they were supposed to run post approval right i mean so yeah. that to me, the, the fact that, that scientists, that serious scientists are afraid to do this kind of research is really bad.
Yeah. Well, I mean, it's part of the it's part of what that censorship regime produces, right? Yes. It's a, a legitimate scientists say, well, do I don't want to be part of that? Like, I don't. I mean, I, I have a career. I have a I have a reputation to uphold. I, I don't want to. I'm not even just going to step in that area because once I do, all of a sudden I'm in the thick of it. Um, yep. I'll just work on other topics. There's just a million other topics in science to work on. Um, yep. But it, it it's it's um. It's the what ends up happening then is that people you say people won't uptake the mRNA. You're absolutely right, but people don't trust the regulatory agencies. They don't trust scientists. They don't trust uh, 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 they, don't, they don't trust drug companies. Many and many of these 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 lack of trust is well earned. These these entities yep. have gone out of their way to throw away their trust, and then censorship comes along, and you just. It's like in the Soviet Union, you when I would read stories, like people read story, I'd, I'd read about this. People would read the newspapers to see not the truth, but like what the government wanted you to believe. Right. <laughs> so they knew if the if the, if the grain harvest was reported as great, that that was where the problem was that year. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Alex. I know we got to go. Maybe we can close on this question yes. about. Um, what do you think about just, you know, all the hesitancy now for other vaccines, you know, causing autism, the RFK Jr. phenomenon? Like, what, what, what do you make of that? Like, are you, are you potentially going to look at other vaccines yourself? Or what do you make of the hysteria? And the hesitancy? I've seen no evidence that vaccines cause autism. Okay. And, and, and what, by the way, one of the big lies out there is that there, there was a big problem with vaccine hesitancy in the United States before 2020. You look at the rates of you know uptake of standard childhood vaccines it's very high okay it's actually remained quite high through 2023 all my kids have gotten their standard childhood vaccine schedules uh, i had you know i was vaccinated with whatever i was supposed to be vaccinated with as a kid which obviously wasn't nearly as much as it is now here's what i would say like the standard inactivated virus vaccines and i guess even the protein submutant stuff i'm pretty comfortable with that stuff certainly inactivated virus like we know what it is. It's the inactivated virus. Um, the fact, and so, and I think a lot of RFK Jr. stuff, look, I like him. I think he's passionate. I think he's an important, it's important to have him talking. But a lot of what he says is just demonstrably incorrect, okay? And 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 it's unfortunate that, that, that that's the case. But he is right about one very big picture point. Okay. It is too easy for these companies to, there's, there's tremendous incentive right now to get something classified as a vaccine because you get immune, you get immunity. Okay. You get legal immunity. If you can get your therapeutic classified as a vaccine and you have this public health establishment, that's going to push to get it on, you know, the childhood schedule or the adult schedule. And so you vaccines used to be a tiny part of the pharmaceutical and drug business, and they are an increasingly important part. And 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 so whenever there's a honeypot created, especially a honeypot with liability protection, there are going to be people trying to take advantage of that. And we have not the public health establishment has not grappled with that issue in a significant and serious way, just like in 1998, when Purdue Pharma said we have basically a non-addictive opioid that everybody can take. Um, you know, and they got a few doctors to sign off on that. They set the seeds for what has become a terrible and tragic problem in the United States. Okay. They've made, they made opioid addiction much worse. And when you, and, and, and RFK Jr. is right to be raising those issues, even if he is wrong about a lot of specifics.
Yeah, I, agree. Okay. Well, I mean, am I am I way no, off I on think, that? I, think, I know I completely agree with you, one hundred percent on everything you just said, Alex. I think, and I think to add to that, he has been right about the lockdowns. Like he's he's one of the he and Ron DeSantis, uh, and there are very few other politicians in the United States that have been, you know, univocally like full 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 voiced uh, opposition to lockdowns. Um, and, and describing exactly the reasons why they're bad and what the what the, I mean, I think it's it's been it's I, I, in one sense having him in the Democratic uh, uh, running for the Democratic primary is really nice because now you have both parties have significant anti-lockdown voices uh, at the center of them. So it, so it'll be it'll be interesting to watch how that unfolds. Um, there's a lot of good things I think about about him, and I'm glad glad he's in the race. I do really wish he wasn't so. Uh, would would would, would I, I wish he'd like. You wouldn't embrace this idea that that, that these uh, childhood vaccines cause autism. Uh, the, I, I agree with you, Alex. That the evidence—it's—it's it's more than just that there isn't evidence. That that it's large-scale epidemiologic studies that are pretty well done out of places like suggesting Denmark. the opposite. Yeah. yeah. So, Alex, I know you, I know you got to go. Um, anything you want to tell us about the future of what's coming with your reporting? Any topics you're going to get into? Are you going to do less COVID, more drugs, or more? What's coming? What's coming in the pipe? I mean, I, you know, it is funny with COVID. I, I like everybody else. I am sick of it, and I'm yeah, and I'm sick of you know writing about the vaccines based on you know so so few good studies going that we have. At the same time, I think it's important to build this historical record. So I'm trying to find that balance too. And I know my readers. You know, I've actually asked them. I have I have a great community on Substack of readers, and 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 I sort of trust them. And, you know, I think I'm going to I'm going to try to keep pursuing topics that are interesting to me and hope that people come along for the ride. That's great. Yeah. And I, I'm on I'm on the same page, too, with COVID. Like it, it is starting to get boring and kind of tedious. And I'm, 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 I'm personally I'm going in the direction more. I'm not, further... I'm not I'm not ready to let go, Raph. I'm not ready to let go. Oh, I, I still yeah, it's gonna, Jay's going to be the last one on the wall. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm by the way, Alex. I'm going more in the big pharma direction, looking at like yes. antidepressants. You know, the the ADHD rise, the anti-anxiety medications, and yeah. the psychedelic therapies for depression. Like, I'm very interested in some of the corruption and the manipulation of data in the mental health side of things on big pharma. That's kind of my. I, I think there's a lot to chase there for sure. So yeah, um, but all right, guys. Well, thank great. you so much. Thank and, you, Alex. Uh, you know, if if. The day I get the, you know, uh, survive the motion to dismiss and Berenson v. Biden, we're ignored. We can do it again, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Alex, thank you for joining us. It's been spending two hours with us. It's really above and beyond. Really, I'm grateful to have gotten to know you through the pandemic as well. Jay, you know, that has been a really, uh, of all the negatives, meeting, you know, meeting you and, you know, there's a handful of other people who I really, um, really like and, you know, really respect and 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 you know there's not that many of us out there and i think we have to we we have to we have to say yeah. that sometimes yeah i do i think i agree with you yeah, and, you and yeah alex you, you you've been a great inspiration you know as, as a young journalist you know coming up and trying to find a voice and figure out what i want to do like it's like i like well, genuinely I, I mean that like you're well, you're an incredible force of good and it's you you've you've kind of helped inform my direction of you know where i'm going to go um, just, you know, just, as I move forward, you know, keep so. trying to write stuff that's interesting to you and not to compromise, Rob. That's that's yeah. all I would say if if you can. And Jay, I'm going to be so I'm going to be out in San Francisco, by the way, in the Bay Area for uh, a Substack thing in late August. So hopefully we can get together then. Oh, that'd be fantastic. Sit together for like some breaks and bread. Okay. Um, all right. You take care. Thanks, right. guys. Bye, hey, Alex, Bye, guys. Don't close oh. the tab here. Oh, okay. <laughs>
This is my this is the this is the genius. This is the power behind the throne. Hi, oh, wow. nice to finally see you. Uh, great nice to meet to you. you guys. Yes. Are you guys helping my husband reintegrate into society? <laughs> Yeah, this is a, this is a two-hour therapy session. It's an intervention. Good, thanks. <laughs> thanks, guys. Okay, it's good. It's Thank good. you. All right. Goodbye. Great. Thanks, Alex. That was, that was a nice cameo at the end. <laughs> Do we?